fucking display. Was the revised one linked? So. It was a separate email. But was, it was, uh, I need um, I'm just waiting for it to come cycle through to make sure. Absolutely. No, it's not. Okay. We're good. <laughs> um, I was, I down, I just downloaded the revised one. I like to download them onto my desktop just in case, like, you know, things go out. But um, I was asking if the revised agenda she sent, if it was linked to, but it wasn't. So. We're just going to turn off the screen so that we're not. No whiplash? Random. <laughs> no. Exactly. No. Yeah. Yeah. up as we I start. That. Huh? We're having all movement. We'll turn it back on. Uh -huh. when we need it. Perfect. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Um, the time is 6 32 p.m. And uh, tonight is Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. We're here for our regularly scheduled North Grove School Committee open meeting. Um, we have four members in attendance today. Uh, Joan Frank is unable to be here tonight. And before we begin our agenda, we're going to have our public hearing for our FY23 budget. So I'm gonna turn it over to Rebecca Pellegrino, our Director of Finance. Thank you, Lauren. Um, so good evening. I will be reading the public hearing on the FY 2023 operational budget. Uh, the Northborough School Committee is committed to providing an exceptional educational experience for all students in a cost-effective manner. The district believes that strong partnerships with parents, the community, and the town government are essential in developing a fiscally responsible and educationally sound school budget. The school leadership team and the committee utilizes its budget priorities, the strategic objectives outlined in the district strategic plan, Vision 2026, and the mission and vision of the district as guiding principles throughout the budget process to de develop a budget that supports an exceptional education for all students. Copies of the fiscal year 2023 school committee voted and approved line item budget are available online at the central office and at the North Borough town offices. I will be providing a total of the FY23 budget subcategories by function classifications as part of the public hearing process. For regular education, function classification administration series 1000, which includes the school committee, superintendent's office, the assistant superintendents, district-wide administration, business and finance, human resources, legal services, and administrative technology. This function totals $843,065. Function classification instruction, series 2000. Department heads, instructional tech leadership and training, principal's office, team leaders at the building level, admin tech and support for schools, teacher salaries, teacher specialists, instructional coordinators, substitutes, instructional assistants, librarians, professional development for leadership, teachers, staff, and substitutes, textbooks, instructional materials, other instructional materials, instructional equipment, general supplies, 
other instructional services, instructional hardware, other instructional hardware, instructional software, and guidance services, this fund code totals $14,116,212. Function classification other student services, series 3000, includes attendance services, health services, transportation, transportation activities, athletics, and student activities, this totals $1,123,582. Function classification operations and maintenance of buildings, series 4000, includes custodial salaries, custodial supplies, heating, electricity, telephone, gas and gasoline, water, maintenance of grounds, buildings, and equipment, tech infrastructure maintenance support, both salaries and other, and technology maintenance. This line item totals $1,816,948. Function classification fixed charges, series 5,000, rentals and leases. This is $24,088. And our total regular day programs Line item budget is $17,923,895, or a 2.46% increase over fiscal year 22. For special education, function classification administration 1,000, legal services and administrative technology is $35,700. For function classification instruction 2000, that includes supervision, team leaders, teaching, professional development, instructional technology, and psychological services, this totals $7,315,923. Function classification other student services, series 3000. This is health services and transportation. And this totals $739,094. Function classification operation and maintenance of buildings, series 4000. This is maintenance of special education equipment, and this is $5,200. Function classification fixed charges, series 5000. This is rentals and leases, and this is $2,118. And finally, function classification programs, non-public schools, series 9,000. This includes tuition out and tuition out to collaboratives, and this totals $671,023. The total special education portion of the budget is $8,769,058, or a 5.57% increase from fiscal year 22. The fiscal year 2023 operational budget total is $26,692,953. This represents an overall increase of $893, excuse me, $893,275 or 3.46% increase over fiscal year 22. I made it all the way through. You the did. last one. All in one breath. So close. So close. Wonderful. So at this point, I would um, welcome any comments on the fiscal year 2023 budget. 
So if anyone in the audience has a comment or a question about our FY23 budget, I invite you to come on up to um, our table up here. Anyone in the audience? Anyone from our panel? Well, then that concludes our public hearing uh, for our FY23 budget. Um, Rebecca Pellegrino, thank you so much for all your work that you did um, to prepare the budget and for your presentation tonight. Thank you. We appreciate it. Um, so now we're going to move on to our regular, regularly scheduled meeting. And we're going to start with uh, item agenda A, which is audience sharing. Uh, so just as a reminder, um, audience sharing um, is an opportunity for any individual in the Northbrook community um, to respectfully express an opinion on any issues within um, the school committee's authority. Um, and so each individual will be given up to three minutes. Um, when you reach about two minutes and 30 seconds, I'll sort of raise my hand to give you um, a little bit of a warning. And if you don't see me, I will sort of verbally uh, just give you the reminder. Um, and public comment as a total um, will not exceed 15 minutes. Um, so if anyone would like to share tonight in our audience, I invite you to come on up, um, state your name and address, and we're gonna have audience sharing over here at this table. Um, and I believe that we have a microphone for you to use as well. Would anyone like to share tonight? No one would like to share? All right, so that means that we, were, we are going to move on to new business. Um, so our first item of new business tonight is our principal's report, um, and we're going to hear from um, Principal Wright. However, I don't think I've seen her yet tonight. So we made a little change in sure. that plan. Um, since Dr. Coakley was going to be here for the other presentation, she is going to give our principal's report tonight. So um, Dr. Coakley um, will join us for that. Wonderful. Thank you, and Dr. Coakley um, will be giving us a presentation about Beasley School. It's principal reports, legislative, math. Kathy, would you like her? No, but the update agenda. Oh, Terry, is there a mic for this? Oh, I think Table. because she's, they're saying that she's the math. Do you want? I didn't, but I didn't have enough volume. We were supposed okay. to do the okay. yeah. masks first. Lower. Masks first. The You're looking the at the old agenda. Oh, I apologize. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm looking at the old agenda. We did revise our agenda. Yeah, you, the linked one. That's what Thank I was you. saying. Yeah. Thank you. Our sorry, first Dr. item Coakley. of news. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. We'll have sorry. you back that's in a minute. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I was, yeah. We revise and start with number two. Because our superintendent. Because yes. both and superintendent, Mary medical advisory, and yes, that um, is Mary Ellen are still okay. in staff for him. Okay. Excuse me. Just wanted to officially do that. Yes. So um, I'm just going to ask um, for consensus from um, the school committee if it is okay. Although our amended agenda um, that we amended on Monday um, included masking discussion and vote first because the superintendent and the medical advisory team is still meeting with Southboro right now. Um, if we can have the principal's report first. Is there any objection? No objection. No. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you so much, Dr. Coakley. <laughs> yeah, figure it out. Back Try run. She's good. <laughs> Dr. Mary Coakley. So amending the amended, going back to the other one. I've got it. <laughs> the main revision to the agenda was adding the item. Was added yet and then. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Coakley, do you need the screen at all tonight? Okay. Thank and you. And does she have a mic over there, Terry? Is she okay or no? <laughs> There's no so mic. I'm going to do my best to turn up the volume. Okay. Um, Perfect. Just letting you know the best audio will be on this. Oh. Yeah, why don't you, yeah for this is one, that, we do that. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. We're just going to keep you moving. 
Thank you so much. Isn't it so great to be back in person? Isn't it? Delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here to report out on the elementary principals reports and the middle school report. Across the four Northboro elementary schools, the fifth grade band and choruses performed in a virtual concert. The concerts were well attended and highly interactive with lots of audience participation. We wish to thank NCAT for their partnership and help in producing the final concert for each elementary school. At the beginning of February, report cards were distributed to all students. On March 31st, parents are invited in for conferences um, with their child's teacher in order to discuss progress and set goals for the remaining months of the school year. There is a virtual option for parents as well. Educators across Northboro and Southboro and Algonquin will engage in professional development opportunities on Monday, March 21st. There are many exciting opportunities and partnerships for staff across grades K through 12. For March, the Z and Peasley School is looking forward to the visit from Josh Funk, an author of several books to include How to Code a Sandcastle. Mr. Funk is a New England native who studied computer science. He will be reading to students in grades K through five. At Z, they will participate in an annual March Madness book bracket. Students from K and two, or K through two and grades three through five will engage in listening to read alouds and a school book champion will be crowned. Z is also hosting their annual project adventure. After taking two years off due to the pandemic, they are excited to once again have this wonderful community opportunity. At the Peasley School, we continue in March with our spirit day, which is called the Luck of the Irish Day. Students will wear green, and they will also be bringing in items for the food pantry, which has gone really well all year long. It is a monthly thing that we do. On March 31st, um, parents are invited to the Apex Day during that half day where kids can come together and um, participate in a fundraising event. March is, is reading month at the Peasley School. We will celebrate reading month all, long, all month long. Activities include community <coughs> reading on March, March 16th, which will focus on having community members reading the culturally responsive books that we've received through our NEF grant. And then a big event happening in April for um, the Peasley School are the Harlem Wizards are back in town, and we're inviting the entire community to Algonquin that evening. At Lincoln Street, they are participating in the third annual International Social and Emotional Learning Day on March 11th. The focus this year is finding common ground, pursuing common good. This year, they are going to do short videos for students to watch every day that week. The videos will cover identifying emotions, managing emotions, identifying solutions to problems, and growth mindset. Lincoln Street students will also be planting a community garden on their school grounds. At the Proctor School, they are excited to welcome Hands-On Nature for grades K through five during the months of March and April. Hands-On Nature will provide students with the opportunities to explore various science topics and standards through interactive and hands-on activities. During the month of March, they will also be celebrating their love of reading through a series of spirit events and all-school reading bingo board. The Proctor fifth graders will be leading Coin Wars in March to raise money for their fifth grade legacy project. 
The elementary and middle schools are busy preparing students for MCAS testing. Students will engage in an infrastructure trial in order to feel ready for the April and May administration. Now on to Melican. Although we started planning for next year's academic year, transitions early this year in March will begin. The transition planning for both our existing eighth grade students and our rising sixth graders. Our eighth grade students are involved in the course selection for ninth grade. Our guidance counselors work closely with these students and Algonquin to guide them and to support families as they make key decisions for next year. Families with students on IEPs and 504 plans have additional transition meetings over the next several weeks to support their transition into ninth grade. We will be holding our fifth grade parent orientation later this month and our special education teachers have begun connecting with their elementary colleagues to plan for next year's sixth graders. We are holding our parent-teacher conferences tomorrow. We are offering a combination of Zoom and in-person conferences. Our second trimester ends on March 11th and our report cards will be shared with families via PowerSchool on March 18th. We are proud to share that three students from Melican Math Team have earned spots at the Math Counts State Competition to be held in person at Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston this Saturday. Our annual Jazz Day and Night takes place this year on March 17th. Students work with a visiting jazz musician during the day and then they put on a wonderful concert at night. After taking last year off, we are excited to bring this wonderful musical tradition back to Melican. Spring sports, which include track, baseball, and softball, begin the week of March 21st. And that concludes the principal's report. Thank you so much, Dr. Coakley. We really appreciate it. Do we have any questions or comments from our members? I'd just like to point out that Keith will be playing on our Wizards team. <laughs> that is accurate. <laughs> Please don't. I mean, that'd be great. Yeah. We, we still we have, have some a, spots open. We so. have a rigorous practice schedule. We do. Training. Dr. Coakley, do you know um, if there are a lot of um, staff participating as members of the team? So we have a good amount. There certainly are some available spots open for people who do want to join, um, but we, we're in good shape. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, I have seen some of the postings. I think that the Peasley PTO has been um, uh, posting on Facebook, uh, sort of highlighting some of the players and yes. some of the teachers. Uh, so that has been really exciting to see. Anything else? Well, Dr. Coakley, we really appreciate you representing all the principals tonight. Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, we jump back? So at this point, um, if the medical advisory team and the superintendent are ready to go to our first item of new business, the masking discussion and vote, we can certainly go there. Um, Mr. Martineau, how do you feel about that? We, just, we did the public hearing, skipped over the uh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now you're up to speed. <laughs> and now you're up if to you, speed. Um, so just Mary Allen Duggan, she... She's here. She's hiding. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so we are ready to um, move ready. to that agenda Perfect. item. Excellent. Um, thank you so much. Um, so, tonight we have an amended agenda, as we mentioned earlier. 
Um, and so we are, um, in light of the new CDC guidance that came out uh, last Friday, uh, we're reopening our discussion about our masking policy um, and uh, going to open it up to a vote if we so choose tonight. Um, and so I would like to um, uh, turn it over to the superintendent as well as Mary Ellen Duggan, who's representing our math advisory team. I'm just talk about the latest guidance and their recommendation. Sure, so I can provide some context I will turn it over to Mary Ellen to provide some data and then would be happy to answer any questions before you start a discussion. Um, so it's hard to believe it's been two weeks since the joint um, school committee meeting with um, the South Carolina counterparts have taken place. A lot happens in two weeks of the pandemic. Um, uh, consequently, one of the things that we learned is CDC has um, changed its criteria for when masks should be be removed in public schools, um, and as a result, the, according to CDC guidelines, masks would be removed in elementary schools based on their criteria. The other data that we have is um, coming back from a vacation. We do have COVID case counts in our schools over the past two weeks, um, and we also have some data from our pooled screening, um, which again is new data that we didn't have, or the committee did not have on. Um, February 17th. So based on the data and also in consultation with the medical advisory team, um, the medical advisory team met last evening and discussed um, whether or not it would support change in date. Um, and basically from a medical perspective, um, they support um, lifting the mask mandate um, tomorrow, March 3rd. We also had conversations with the association and the association also supports medical advisory team's recommendation. Um, so there is alignment and agreement around um, lifting the mask mandate. And as a result, my recommendation to the committee is to change um, lifting the date of remo uh, removing the mask requirement from March 14th to March 3rd tomorrow. And basically that would provide families still an option to um, wear, have children wear masks. Many of our educators will still remain masked. And for those families who feel like you know, their children are ready to unmask, it would give them that um, flexibility. Um, at the middle school and high school level, we are seeing um, they lifted the masking requirement on February 28th. We are seeing um, one out of every three students wear a, a mask, so there's still a high level of mask wearing. And um, it's gone very well, and students have been very respectful. Um, so at this point, I will turn it over to Mary Ellen, who will provide a summary of the data. Okay. Can we just play the recording from the last meeting? <laughs> Hang on, let me rewind. Rewind. <laughs> All right, so. Excuse, one second, can you share that file or something? Just so we, or is that not? Because we don't have that length in that one. Yes, I can share. Can we, okay. Just because the angle, I'm just thinking it might be easier if. Oh, he's is there a chair on the other side of you, Miss Bailey? Uh, Actually, we can. Uh, I can Mr. move, and someone. Do you mind moving the screen? Or just turn sure. the screen? Is that okay? No, gladly. Is that? Yeah. I didn't know if it interfered with Terry's setup I don't think or so, not. I think so that's what. Okay. Yeah, good to begin. Terry, how's that? I'll just get whatever's here. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. 
Thank you. As many of you know, the CDC came out with new recommendations on February 25th and acted on February 25th. Um, if we had this information on February 17th, we probably would not be having this discussion, but since we seem to get all of our information after the fact, <laughs> after we've made decisions, um, we need to be a little bit flexible here. So the new CDC recommendations are based on a low, medium, high rating, um, which is the community risk. So if your community is low risk, um, the recommendations is a personal preference to wear a mask if you want to or not, depending on your level of risk. If your community is um, denoted as a medium risk, if you're immunocompromised or at risk or at high risk for severe illness, or if you live with someone who um, is immunocompromised or at high risk for severe illness, it is recommended that you speak to your healthcare provider and go on their recommendations about masking while you're indoors. If you're in a high risk area, um, masking is recommended. So, um, can you go to the next slide, please? So how do, how do they indicate the low, medium, and high risk? If you have followed anything from the CDC and their transmission risks, um, we have talked about this before, that their low to moderate um, rating was nearly impossible to meet. It was a number per 100,000 that our communities had never been at. So now with this more reasonable data point set, um, they used the uh, cases per 100,000 over the past seven days. So in Northborough, um, over the past seven days, we have had eight cases in the town. So with that, um, that would be 8.4 per 100,000 per day. If you multiply that by seven, it would be 5758. So it's way less than the 200 that you, was our starting point for figuring out where we are. And then they would take into um, consideration the new COVID-19 admissions into hospitals per 100,000 um, over a seven-day total and the inpatient beds occupied by COVID-19 patients in, our, in this area. So it's by county that they're doing it. So in Worcester County, we can go to the next slide. This is the map that came out with the new CDC recommendations. As you can see, Worcester County, Northborough, Southborough border, right on Worcester and Middlesex, and we are in the moderate risk. So that would be masking is recommended for immunocompromised or people who are at high risk. The data that I pulled today, um, Worcester County has um, 14 cases per 100,000, which would um, still put us in that first category less than 200 and the hospitalizations which is the next slide um, is the eight per hundred thousand so I'm presuming that the next map we see from the CDC um, Worcester County will be green and low risk so these are the average daily cases per hundred thousand in our towns the blue is Northborough the orange is Southborough as you can see Northborough is below 10 per hundred thousand per day at this point in time. In our schools, these are the last four weeks. You can see the drop-off. The last two weeks have been steady over vacation. And this week, um, Northborough is in the green, and they had um, one case over vacation and two cases this week. And then our, our graphs, they all follow the same as every state and county the town that all follows the same, and you can see it leveling off and really low rates. 
the last past two weeks. And our vaccination rates, they're still steady where they have been. Um, and when we speak about vaccination rates, we can't get around the fact of the studies that came out this week and in the press. Um, so you can go to the next one. So along with the, um, the study that was in the press a lot, in the media a lot, which was, I will get to in the next slide, is from New York State. The CDC also came out with a study um, about vaccine effectiveness. And what they looked at was urgent care and emergency department visits. So urgent care, a lot of people think that's like going to the minute clinic or the urgent stop, but urgent care visit is also a sick visit to your healthcare provider, your primary care provider. So um, during Omicron, which is probably from mid-December until the present time, um, the vaccine effectiveness for five to 11 year olds was 51%. 51% in preventing emergency room or urgent care visits. Prior to mid-December, when we were talking about Delta and Omicron together in that period when we were switching over, it was 74% effective in preventing hospitalizations. So that is prior to up until the present time, still 74% in preventing hospitalizations. So then when we talk about the study that was much quoted this past week in the media, it's the next slide, from New York State. Um, this study was not peer-reviewed, um, so we need to keep that in mind, that it was a preprint study that was released, um, so it has not been peer-reviewed. The case sampling was very small. They used only positive cases that were the state was notified of, so this is no people who used home antigen tests are included in this. So um, we need to, so this study, um, brought a lot of questions. It made people question like, what is the vaccine efficacy? And we will learn a lot from this study, but um, we need to look at the qualifiers of the study too when we're making that decision. So in this study, the vaccine efficacy for five to 11 year olds, um, which pre-Omicron, pre-mid-December, it was 68% um, effective in preventing infection and 100% in preventing hospitalization. And then um, this next, the bottom one is during Omicron, which is just for during the week of January 24th, which is just a one week time set. Um, it was 12% in preventing infection and 48% in preventing hospitalization. So I think the limitations of this study are the sample size um, and that it's not peer reviewed. So we need to look, at, it's, it was great to raise a lot of questions about this and to compare this. The CDC study came out the day after this one did. Um, so that's just food, you know, to feel to think about when we're talking about the vaccine, our vaccine rates and the efficacy of the vaccine and what we're gonna need to focus on next, whether it's a booster or, you know, the dosing that the five to 11 year olds got. So when we get to optional masking, some reminders that I think are important, masks will be required in, every health office and masks will be required on days 6 to 10 when returning to school from a shortened five-day isolation or quarantine. So even though masks are optional, there are times when they will be required and you have to wear them. There are times when masks will be recommended and they, masks are recommended for unvaccinated individuals. They're recommended for immunocompromised individuals. 
They're recommended for vaccinated close contacts for 10 days after exposure to an individual who is positive for COVID-19 and recommended for individuals who have symptoms and have tested negative until their symptoms resolve. So some other important reminders um, as we move forward and we um, are thinking about um, lifting the mask requirement that we need to continue to be diligent in other mitigation strategies and one of those is to monitor for symptoms um, as the symptoms have not changed from um, the beginning of COVID-19. There's still a list of about 10 symptoms, some by singularly you would require testing and some if they're in combination with those. If you're symptomatic, we ask that any staff or anybody coming into the school really, staff or students, um, please stay home and call the nurse if you have symptoms. And depending on your symptoms, they, PCR testing may be recommended, not just antigen testing. Um, and we also encourage continued participation in the weekly pooled screening on Mondays and the weekly antigen testing on Thursdays. So as we think about that, we are going to be lifting some of our mitigation that we've had in place for 20, almost 24 months coming up. Um, that the things that we can do, the personal things that we can do, we need to take that personal responsibility to do those things. And, you know, this um, operationally, we are still have HEPA filters in the room. The windows are still open. We, um, the, they do CO2 readings. We have hand sanitizer everywhere. We're doing the reminders about proper hand hygiene, cough etiquette, personal space, all of those typical infection control things that we talk about in a year. Um, but this is just, we need to really be diligent about the things that we do have control over. So I am open to any questions that anybody might have about um, the recommendations that Mr. Martineau uh, made or the presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, so just to recap, um, the recommendation um, presented to us tonight is that effective tomorrow, um, March 3rd, um, the masking mandate would be lifted for our elementary school students, which originally um, was going to be on March 14th. Um, so given the presentation from Mary Ellen and um, Mr. Martineau, any questions, any comments or discussion? Make a motion. Absolutely, go for it, Aaron. I'd like to make a motion that we approve the recommendation made by the MAT as presented with the change of date, lifting it from the mask mandate from March 14th to March 3rd. I think the strongest point we had when we voted last time was in, you know, to be in coincidence with the bus mandate at the federal level, which has already been lifted. Um, personally, I think we've talked about this enough, and I think we it's only seven school days that we're changing this by, so I think it's important to approve it. and move on with our agenda thank you I hear a motion second thank you there's a motion and a second to accept the recommendation further discussion Keith yeah question um, in the language of the policy as it was passed I don't have it in front of me at the moment didn't it comment on busing it did there was one part about okay. busing is there so something that needs so to be when the policy is in effect it's masking indoors and on buses. Mm -hmm. So by um, making a vote tonight, it would remove the requirement for masking indoors mm -hmm. and on buses. So that so is it to be in the language of Is the it motion. rescinding the policy then or no? It's just, it's not rescinding policy, it's just. No, the policy is still in effect. Okay. Um, however, according to the policy that we approved, 
um, when we decide to lift the mask mandate, uh, we do have to approve it as a board um, once the superintendent recommends it to us. Just It doesn't need to be in the language of the motion itself. Mm -hmm. That's uh, my question, basically. Oh, can you, uh, what do you mean Whether by the Whether busing needs to be mentioned. I don't think it would hurt. We, we could uh, amend it if we motion. if we choose. Sure, would you like to amend your motion? Um, so we can amend the motion to include that mask will no longer be required on school buses. Excellent. So I second, second the amended motion. <laughs> but we would technically need to vote, need to vote the amendment. Um, yes, so we, have, right. we vote the where we vote on the amended motion. motion. Exactly, yes. Or you could withdraw your motion. Do I? It can't be withdrawn after it's been seconded. No. Second. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we have an amended motion. Um, it's been seconded. And before we proceed with any type of vote, I'm curious if there's any further discussion, any comments, questions? Um, I just, I, I agree with Aaron. I mean, I think we've all, exhausted the topic thoroughly um, you know we've had several emails from p parents and communities on both sides of it to keep the masks to not have the masks um, we're never gonna please a hundred percent of the population it's it's impossible to do that um, so all we can go on is the medical advisory team and the trust that we've put in the superintendent central office in making this medical advisory team and the advice that they've given us and I think up to this point we've trusted in them and all the steps of the way so I think it makes sense to continue trusting in them and trusting in the process um, and I know it's been frustrated for families um, that it hasn't moved quick enough but I think as I said, we're looking out for the best interest of all children in the community, the staffing, everybody. Um, so it, it, it is a process, and um, and you know, I think I think we're going with it. And so I think it's important to um, understand that this is the first time that the CDC, the DPH, and DESE have all aligned really with their recommendations and. Like I said, if we had all of this information on uh, two weeks ago, two then weeks ago, it been a we wouldn't vote. been having mm -hmm. this. And the medical advisory team 100% agreed that March 3rd was okay. We sent out, we met yesterday to see if the vaccine studies changed their thought on that, and it really didn't. So I think my only other um, thing that we were talking about why we decided to do wait on the elementary part of it was the buses because we knew it would be kind of a confusing thing for the kids you have to wear the bus to school you have to wear the mask to school on the bus but then you could take it off but then you have to put it back on like so that was one of the things the other thing was we wanted to make sure that the littles were prepared and knew about you know that this is going to be a potential change um, I don't know how that's been going on the level I know in my personal household, the kids haven't talked about it in their classes. But again, I've two out of uh, what? How many classrooms do we? Have? You know what I mean? So it's just, um, you know, I, I've heard a second grade classroom has talked about it and stuff. And but and I think um, the elementary kids are 
kind of used to it because it's optional at recess. Mm -hmm. So they're already, you know, my kids say that some kids wear them at recess. Mm -hmm. So they're already used to seeing an environment where some kids have them and mm -hmm. some kids don't. And mm -hmm. so. So can I just comment? So mm -hmm. I think that I did signal to the community what my recommendation was going to be to the committee um, this past Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, teachers have been having conversations with students around, you know, being respectful around choice, whether it's masking or not masking. I think that, um, you know, we anticipate that if it is the will of the committee and the committee votes to lift the masking mandate tomorrow, many of our students still will be masked tomorrow. You know, again, as I indicated, one out of every, you know, three students at the middle school and high school level have continued to mask. I would assume that number is going to be much higher at the elementary level. Um, but Families still can decide to send their children to school and ask the students to wear a mask until the weekend. And then if they want to have a, a deeper conversation with their children over the weekend, they can. So I think the flexibility is really important <coughs> at this point in time. Yes, Keith. Um, I pretty much echo a few of the sentiments already expressed. Uh, it's We're in a better spot with of course, the, the context, the pandemic, and, and uh, in particular, uh, severe illness and death, obviously, has is, is kind of been the game we've been playing all the way through this and, and, and looking at that. Um, it's a huge relief to me, too, that we, we have been able to kind of gradually shift the committee back to being just a committee and have, using the medical advisory team when we're in the very active part of the pandemic. It was very challenging because there was just there were things were happening so fast um, and quite frankly you know we're mostly educators and not medical professionals Aaron's a bit of an exception but um, you know it's it's better to divide and conquer with these things and, and use the subject matter experts and so I think where we've the, the way everything has matured especially under your leadership Greg to really get everything in order with medical advisory and how regularly they meet and the communication that we receive and the all the information from Mary Ellen through where it's summarized and we we can kind of look at what we should look at and digest and stay away from reading the studies you know like it was earlier in the pandemic so I think the algorithm is correct I think what I want to know is that you've spoken to building principals and the the, the teachers associations and you've made it very clear that you've gone through like the same process I would hope to see so that all the key stakeholders and groups um, have been accounted for and that everything is in order in order to make the change. I have one just residual just question which is um, how are what what's being asked of the teachers the lower levels with respect to knowing who's supposed to be or are they just are we just opting out of this are they being asked to look after certain kids who perhaps are immunocompromised like what, what are the what are the logistics looking like at this point just in the lower grades and it, more so it's just to understand what we're asking our teachers to do and so that the committee is aware of you know what that looks like in practice that would be helpful that's a great question I think Mary Allen can speak to some of uh, our medically fragile students so I think the nurses have worked with the parents of our students who may be immunocompromised or at high risk um, throughout the whole pandemic, you know, for all sure. different reasons, whether they needed to even pre-pandemic. You know, if there was strep in a classroom, they would notify them, or if there was some illness in the classroom, those people would be notified. So they're working with them with accommodations. 
I do not think we would put it on the teachers to monitor who's supposed to wear a mask and who's not. I think that is a family discussion that needs to be made at the family level and recommendations. I know we have people in administration who have young children who have had that conversation with their students, with their own children. You know, like when you're in a room with a lot of people, we would request that you put it on. And when you're, you know, just with a small group of your friends, yes, you can take it off. So I think it's a family discussion that needs to be made. Um, and then if it is a health risk, then it needs to, there's a conversation that needs to be had with each school nurse. And one concern we had was getting ready. And so what I'm hearing now is that we're the, from a logistical standpoint, the nursing offices, the building principals and the teachers, they're in a spot where they can go ahead and move this forward without too much yeah, difficulty. Yeah, so, um, you know, teachers have been having conversations with their students, I think, you know, starting Monday. We met with the leadership team to make sure that they had everything they need to be prepared. And then in, just in terms of, um, you know, asking teachers to kind of monitor who's supposed to be wearing masks and not, we are not asking teachers to um, police masking in their classrooms. Um, so I think we just want to make that clear to, to families that, you know, if a family decides to have their son or daughter wear a mask, that, you know, most likely that that's what will happen. But teachers aren't going to have a list of who should be masked and not. Um, <coughs> Kelly? Oh, yes, are, you, are you done, Keith? What, do you want to uh, follow yes. up at all? No, okay. thank you. Um, appreciate that. So my, my, on the flip side of that is, do we have any staff members who are I mean, compromised or something that they are requesting for the students in their classrooms to be wearing masks or anything. I have a friend in, a, in another district, and you know, that was one of her things was that, listen, I'm in me and I need people around me to be masked. Yeah, so we've encouraged our faculty and staff if they have a medical condition yeah. that requires them to have additional accommodations okay. to reach out to our human resources department and we'll provide those accommodations. Okay. But the accommodation will not be um, for a teacher to require all students in that class. In to their classroom, ask. okay. Other accommodations can be made um, and that is, um, you know, Director Richards' um, responsibility. Okay. I just didn't know if we would be hearing the flip side of you know, parents saying, oh, my, my kid came home today and they said that their teacher said that they have to wear the masks and we're telling them they don't have to wear the mask. And so I just wanted to know that that's, that's not the case in our district. So if that's what a parent is hearing, they need to go through the proper channels. And I think that's a great point too, as we, you know, every transition, every change is going to be um, not perfect. There's going to be um, bumps in the road and, and you know, if a parent has a concern or has a question, we encourage a parent to reach out to the principal or the classroom teacher and ask the question, or reach out to one of us and, and we'd be happy to respond and make sure they have accurate information. Yes, Keith. Are we doing more COVID update later or should we? Uh, there is COVID update There's coming more. up okay. later. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I have another it, question, but it's more general, so I'll keep it outside of the masking conversation. Okay, that would be perfect. Sure. Um, so um, I guess I'll just sort of uh, input my thoughts as well. Um, 
so I just wanted to let you know that as a teacher myself, uh, my students have had the option to mask or unmask this week. Um, I do not teach in this district, but a neighboring district, and um, students have been very respectful. I do teach at the middle school level, so different than elementary. Um, and you know, one thing that um, I think really helped is I, um, I told my students um, sort of what my masking um, options were going to be and how I was going to sort of operate in the classroom. And um, I had a student who was not masked and um, then raised his hand and asked me a question. I said, oh yeah, come on up, I'll help you out. Like, bring, your, bring your Chromebook up. And all of a sudden he's there and he has his mask on and I had my mask on. And I had said, you know, when I'm working closely with another student, um, I will be wearing my mask. And he was just really respectful. And he put it on and I, I just, there's so much respect in our kids. I think that the kids who want to be masked are, are respectful, the kids who do not want to be masked. And I was just very pleasantly surprised by the middle school students. And I do think that it's really going to be um, a great change. And um, if there is no, if there's a, uh, learning opportunities to teach more about respect. I know that our teachers are well equipped to handle those um, sort of in the moment uh, learning opportunities. So without further ado, we have a motion on the table to um, lift the mask mandate effective tomorrow, March 3rd for our elementary school students, um, both in the classroom as well as the buses. Um, so we do not need a roll call vote. So all those in favor, uh, it passed unanimously. Thank you. Thank you. And Mary Ellen, thank you very much for your presentation. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. Um, so we next have a legislative update. Do we have anything new to report, Mr. Martineau? No, I think just uh, simply that the um, state budget process is moving through its process. Um, we have the governor's budget, um, and we are waiting for revisions. So. As we get those numbers, we'll be working closely with um, Town Administrator Kader uh, and seeing what impacts, if any, it will have on um, the, the pre-K through eight budget. Excellent, thank you. Um, so our next order of new business, um, we are going to have some of our um, uh, members of our district present on math and ELA. Um, so we have Mary Coakley, Kathy Lazat, and Megan Kelty here to present to us tonight. Um, since we don't have a mic over here, I'm going to encourage you to come on over to this section over here um, for your presentation. And if you have anything to set up on the screen, we can also do that right now. Thank you. Maybe uh, Stephanie, you and I can move. Sure. Um, you can actually come a little bit further down here if you'd like. I think that um, Superintendent Martin is Stephanie, are you doing the right Thank you. mathematics and Megan Kelsey will be talking about our ELA at both the elementary and the middle school levels. So thank you. Welcome. All right. Um, we're going to focus our share around the um, district strategic plan and two of the elements that we're going to talk about are 
empowering learners. We're going to focus on where in both mathematics and ELA we are talking about high quality instructional practices with our teachers with that goal of meeting the needs of all of our students and how we're using collaboration within our schools and across our districts for those high quality instructional practices. And equity of opportunity is our second element. This is where um, we're going to share our opportunities for collecting and using student data to, again, meet the needs of all of our students and what those systems now look like to address the, the needs of all of our learners. So we're going to start with elementary mathematics. Um, so in thinking in terms of um, equity, where we're collecting the student data and aligning our assessments to meet the needs of our students. We have started in grades three through five with a new um, screener and diagnostic assessment. These two assessments are just within these three grade levels, as Megan will share later. Um, we've kind of split the, the heavy lifting on our teachers, focusing K-1 and 2 on English and language arts this year, and grades three, four, and five with the focus on math and our data collection. So we have a new um, screener diagnostic, and it's connected to our Envisions program. And it just gives us the opportunity for our teachers to look at readiness for the standards and how they can use that to inform their instruction as they move through the topics. Um, we now have common topic assessments from grades K through five across both Northboro and Southboro. A little different than um, the past where we did have common topic assessments, usually within grade levels within teams at each school. Um, but now we have this across both Northboro and Southboro. And lastly, we have data grids for our teachers. And here, this is where the teachers compile all the data, things that we've had before in the past, but again, just kind of have worked to revise them and tweak them for, for the teachers to use. And in that, it includes the topic assessments, in fact, fluency, which was a need that the teachers felt they wanted to start monitoring as they were going. So how does this connect to our high quality instructional practices? One of the things we've been doing is using that data at our grade level meetings to guide our instructional action plans. And what that simply means is, what do we do now? So we know where, these, um, where students may be struggling, we know where students are excelling, what do we do now, um, and what are those plans that we have as we move forward with our students? And so um, this is where part of our collaboration comes, where especially in Northboro, we have sister schools now. So we've had an awesome opportunity where Peasley and Lincoln Street have common time where they meet either faculty meeting or common grade level time. And Proctor and Z schools have the same. And this just provides an opportunity where a grade level team can meet and talk about you know, looking at their own personal data with their students, but talking and sharing those strategies, those high leverage practices that they're using within their classroom in order to help students achieve. Um, so that's been a great opportunity for Northboro this year. We also are continuing to support our teachers in using the Envisions curriculum. So when the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020, we were transitioning, we were upgrading our current um, Envisions program, which was 2016 version to 2020. And we really had to shift a lot of the professional development to be um, virtual. When we returned in the following year, we were able to have some more in-person professional development. Um, but this, one of the things that we're doing this year is what we call a weekly math share. And it's an opportunity where our teachers 
receive every Friday a slideshow that revisits some of the new components of the 2020. It looks at some of the components that have been there, but it brings some of our past professional development that we've had over the course of the last five years, at least since I've been here, into, and we're revisiting that into what it looks like with the new Envisions 2020. So teachers have that opportunity to kind of have a weekly professional development, a reminder of what these high leverage practices are in what they're doing you know, with their weekly, with their weekly work. And then lastly, we have, um, with an ESSERT grant, we have online math tutoring for our select grade five students. We have approximately maybe 40 students total that have the opportunity to come and um, partake in this online math tutoring. Right. And, then, and then just what's up and coming. <coughs> Just to have it um, in our site, we have one more year under our contract with the Envisions 2020. So what we're looking right now to do as our math leadership team is starting a curriculum review process. And this includes looking at Envisions, seeing what has worked for us. Maybe are there areas that we need to um, consider something else? And then do we need to adopt another program? The only reason that's really on the table with our contract being up, so we have it for one more year, with our contract being up is within the time we adopted the update to now, there has been a number of um, curriculum products that have come out in mathematics. The good news is we are currently using a highly rated curriculum product. So whether or not we stay with it or we go with a new program, you know, the, the good news is we're, we're starting at a great place in this review process because if we stick with it, we're already using a highly rated program. So those will be discussions with our math leadership teams coming up. And Mary, on to the middle school. So on to I middle schools. Oh, right. I just ask a question, oh, just yeah. since Absolutely. we're just yeah. in the yeah. elementary, yeah. just yeah. before yeah. we jump ahead. Yeah. Um, so is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, is, so is this? So the envision is. I I have two little ones. I have um, third and fourth, and last year they were second and third. So they had like the math book. Yes. The math book and then they did a lot of online last year my kids yep. were remote yep so did they continue the online in the stuff in class this year yes and so, so they brought a lot of that that they did and it's that they all may have been using remotely remotely yes. and it's and so the, bro the program includes with each lesson what they call a visual visual learning bridge so it's a video that is um connected to the daily lesson. Mm -hmm. So a lot of teachers use those. They also have what's called another look video. So oftentimes teachers, sometimes they surplant that in place of the mm -hmm. other one. Um, but oftentimes it's an opportunity for students to um, re-watch the video when they're going on, you know, to do their practice or whatnot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of online components that I'm sure they were using remotely that they're able now to do in the classroom because most teachers still have their Google Classrooms set up. Mm -hmm. um, so they've been doing a lot of um, things called practice buddies mm -hmm. or um, you know, even sometimes assessments on there. So, yep, absolutely, you'll see a lot of that translated back into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's a learning curve with everything you do and anything. Has there been anything with the kids that they, the online portion things don't work for them and, like, they're better for the, is there an option for them to go back to the, you know, absolutely. the paper things? Yep, and so it works both <coughs> ways sure. for the kids. Yep, so I know every learning style, everybody learns different and, I could see that being, you know. Yep, so I think because we're now one-to-one, -one, there's that opportunity that they have that chance to use that technology and that online learning piece, but you will go into all the classrooms and you will see that the students have that, that paper workbook still that they're doing it. 
because personally too, uh, the math, it's like having that ability to do it on paper, it's, it's so important. And I think mm -hmm. all of our teachers have brought that back into it. But then there's that practice piece, there's that other piece that they can do um, online that provides them with quick, easy access to data. Mm -hmm. So I know that they're using those pieces as well. But for sure, it's definitely a hybrid ap approach in the math classrooms. Thank you. Good question. Do you want to continue with questions? Um, yeah. Wait, yeah. Could we? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, Erin. Um, just a few questions. The online math tutoring. Yes. How were those students identified as needing the tutoring? Yep. So, um, do you want me to speak to that? Is that yeah. okay? Yeah. Go for it. Okay. So, um, <laughs> when we were dating, uh, creating those data worksheets. So that was their um, grade level topic data. And then there was for grades, for grade five, they also included that screening and diagnostic data. So that was looked at and they were trying to identify the students that maybe needed that extra support. And from there, it was also teacher recommendation. So looking at that list of students that may have been recommended for needing the extra supports, teachers were then given that list and asked to go through. There were a number of reasons students may have been deselected for it if it, you know, things were already included perhaps in an IEP or something that was being covered in a different way and opportunities like that. So then the teachers ultimately then took that list. And uh, was there anything more with title? Um, MCAS. Was oh, MCAS, thank you, yes, yes. And when are they receiving the tutoring? During school or is it before, before after? School. Before school, before. right, that's when North Coast students yeah. yeah. It's a 30 minute session twice a week. And how long, for the whole year? Until June. Oh wow, okay. And how long have we used Envisions? So this is my fifth year. I want to say collectively as a district within Northborough and Southborough, this is our sixth year okay. having it. So next year with our contract, we'll, so it'll be seven years total that we have had it. Yep. And there how was long pockets. is it? Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. How long is a contract for? Um, so this last one was for three years. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Sure. Any other questions? Yes, yeah. Keith. Um, this is very great. Very, very good information. Um, what's a little bit hard sometimes is to know like what the previous state was. You're presenting all the things you are doing. Yep. So I would just like to understand like what are the common themes? You know, what what's really shifting? What what are the fundamental shifts that are occurring? I, I see data appears to be, you know, a theme. But it's you you made references to some things that have changed and how they were before, but that. Um, it's still hard to kind of put together. Sure, I'll do my best to so please ask Yeah, that could be for anybody. Yeah, I think the <coughs> main thing is teachers were always collecting data. That was the bottom line. What we've tried to do to make it also to consider that equity piece is to make sure that we were giving all students, Northborough and Southborough, that same, we were, we were creating those assessments so that it's the same. What is it that we want students to know and be able to do, both across Northborough and Southborough, having that common assessments have allowed us to do that. So that's one change. Again, those assessments were there and they were available. Teachers just had that a little bit more freedom to maybe tweak things as they were giving it. Now it's, it's we're giving the same assessment. Streamlining. Streamlining it okay. more. Same thing with the data. We were always collecting data. We were collecting it um, when we started. A lot of the data we were collecting was um, almost item analysis data on some of the assessments. It was very helpful at the time. It allowed us to tweak the assessments a lot and make sure that what we were asking of our students aligned with what we were trying to get to. That data isn't as um, useful now that we've kind of tweaked these assessments to get them to where we want. So now we're looking at that overall um, you know, that overall assessment data. So it's, it's more that we're collectively all giving the same data, okay. and that's the biggest shift, I think. And then we'll, we're able to see maybe where the strengths and weaknesses are for students and 
then direct some instruction to meet those individual needs as well as collective needs of where kids need more support. For sure, and it helps us also look at it as a whole. Where are there holes in our curriculum, mm -hmm. right? If we're all giving the same thing, it's not where are the holes in pockets of air, it's where's, you know, where might we need to add additional things into our curriculum. And then engaging in conversations about what teachers are using in their classrooms and sharing with other colleagues about what they may have tried. Okay. Yeah. I think that's the second biggest shift yeah. is, is that, that ability for teams to cross schools now and have those conversations in our professional learning communities that we were not, you know, it was a team of two or three perhaps within your own school, which is very valuable, but now you have, it's opened up the doors, you know, what are, what are you doing, you know, in your school? What's working for you? What are some practices that you use that maybe I can try where, where I am? And that's really a, a big shift from, from what was happening before. Cool. Very big on data, so I'm glad that, <laughs> I'm glad to hear there's aggregate data where you can look for patterns yes. and, you know, look at the curriculum and look at, you know, our, our weaknesses as a district, we, ha we have some right in in all curriculum areas you're always improving it but then also looking at the individual student profile of course is very important to meet those students needs and the ideal system brings both all that information is gleaned from the ideal data system because otherwise why bother right what are we what are we trying to do with it we want to make the whole system better but we want to make sure each student um, gets a, a good opportunity to um, to you know master the curriculum and to um, you know to to do the best that they can. So. And we're also trying to seize on the opportunity of the grant. So for instance, we initiated this diagnostic in the screener and learned about some of our students and that there were some gaps that students were having and then initially put um, in a support using the tutoring so that kids in fifth grade are able to fill some gaps before they head to the middle school so that they feel a little bit more confident in their skills um, and so we're hopeful that that's a, a product that we will be able to continue to use for that need. Was it, um, you said it was about 40 students, is that, um, was it like, okay, we can only do 40 students and these are the ones, or was it looking at everything, 40 was the number of who, you know, yes. was there anyone basically not chosen to do the tutoring or? So I think kind of like what we do in other content areas, we look at the highest need, mm -hmm. but it felt really good that 10 was a number of where we thought the greatest needs fell. Um, now, whether or not we're able to include more kids in the future, mm -hmm. I don't know, but right now, the kids who really need it are receiving it. Mm -hmm. And we've had a good response to it. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Coakley, are we ready for your yes. part of the presentation? Thank you. So I want, I'd like to speak a little bit more about high-quality instructional practices through the lens of resources. So we've begun conversations. We started with principals and then um, math leaders about our current resources and our methodology and then whether or not we should be exploring other resources. Um, and the reason why that came up was a couple of three ideas that you see up here. We were, as we were discussing those things, it was evident that classrooms are different. Um, and there is a wider need among students within a classroom, across classrooms and across schools. So we, we needed to look at that to make sure our resources were covering that. And then also, did all students have equitable access to high quality instructional materials on a consistent basis. 
Um, and then the third is, did educators have at their fingertips the resources they need in order to plan for those things? Um, so we started to engage in a process of, you know what, maybe there are things out there that we could be using that are better than what we're currently using. Um, and so we started to explore um, some really strongly vetted high quality resources. We started with about eight um, and have narrowed it down a little bit. Um, and and I'll, I'll speak to this a little bit later. We really felt like the conversations we were having were really meaningful. And I'm proud of the, the work and the, the ability of our leaders as well as principals to really kind of think about um, what we need to be offering kids in mathematics. Um, again, we at the middle school, we started this week with the pre-assessment for the math tutoring, and we have about 32 students who are receiving that. Um, next week, they will have their, because the process works where the kids take a pre-assessment, and then the company comes up with an individualized plan for each student. And so next week, they'll start their plan. Um, so we're excited about that. <laughs> I, I didn't know if there were questions. Quick fingers. <laughs> oh. Um, and so, was that my only slide? I thought it was. <laughs> well, that's why I was no, all I surprised too. One more slide. But that's okay, I'll pull it up on mine. So my slide, um, the second one had to do with uh, what's next in our planning. So I wanted to outline just what's coming. And so the first thing we did was on February 16th, the math leaders, myself, Stephanie, we actually looked at resources. Um, we started with eight resources and teachers had time to review it and then meet back and discuss um, what they thought about each resource, what were the benefits, where did they see it adding to what we currently had. Um, and so we then, our next step in that, we were able to go from eight to four. And our next step is to meet as a, a leadership team to say, okay, which ones are we recommending? What do we want our educators to be able to look for during their part of the, the review? So it starts with us, but we are engaging educators on the, sixth or the 21st of March to look at each of these resources and vet it for themselves too and be able to communicate what they see as being things that will benefit them as teachers as well as their students because it is difficult um, to really be able to take a resource and and pull actually what you need from multiple resources we want to get um, or look into a resource that will allow them to do that a little bit easier and there are things out there that do um, do give them that those opportunities so on the the 21st we want educators to go through that process using a rubric, and then we want to see if we can get some volunteers to do pilots in the spring, the late spring. And what that would look like is um, that we would identify a unit that they would be teaching, or a couple of lessons in a unit, and they would pilot from both, say we get down to two, that's our ideal goal, two resources. Then they would meet back and discuss those, and then we would potentially be able to select a new resource um, to use starting in, in the fall. Um, we want educators to be giving their input on that timeline because we want to make sure that they're on board with it, that it is something they think they can achieve. Um, and then what's 
what's also beneficial about the timing is we want to be able to implement a resource that will come with a PD component to it so that teachers will receive the support they need as they're trying to implement these new, um, this new product with students. Um, and so then we would have to, we really do need their input on the timeline. So our, you know, we're very opportunity uh, driven, Stephanie and I, we do really want them to, to make the jump. We do see that based on the conversations with the leaders, they are seeing real, like they're excited about what's there. Um, and so we're hoping the rest of the faculty is thinking the same. Any questions for me? So, um, the online tutoring for the ESSER for grades six to eight, how many students are 32. doing? 32. 32 amongst yes. the three, okay. Yeah. And that's sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Yes. Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade for the three, okay. I know that at the elementary level, mm -hmm. um, you were talking about common assessments. Mm -hmm. Does that also happen at the middle school level as well? So there are, that definitely is an area we need to work on. I think the difference is at the elementary school, we've realized that we need to, can, we need to develop which of the common assessments should be the ones that are in that database. Um, you're not going to put every unit test, you're not going to put every common assessment, but what are those common benchmark assessments? Um, so we have work to be done for that. Right now, um, math teachers are, have a lot of data. They're, you know, they, they do quizzes, they do tests, they do um, uh, a lot of things where they know where kids stand. But there's some individuality between teachers, and we don't want to move away from that, but we do want to have more conversations about what are those data points that we need to be looking at together? And that work will have to come. So right now, um, what's being used for that benchmark data? So they have developed at each grade level what those things are, okay. but we need to link what's happening at Trottier and American. They're close, but they might not be exact. Um, and, and the same thing, because there are multiple levels on grades, um, we have to make sure that the, the different courses also have the same um, assessments. Not all assessments, but common assessments. Thank you. Yeah. Keith. So I'm hearing a lot about the data. Yes. And uh, the materials, resources, and curriculum. My question is more around the good materials get you like so far, yes. right? And then there's the craft of teaching, right? In engaging with the students, reading exactly how they're responding to a given material at a given time, and you know uh, that more dynamic piece. So is this at all intertwined with instructional rounds, sharing the craft, right? People can observe, you know, higher performing, maybe more experienced math teachers. Is there? an interplay there? Yes, so I think for this year, I know I've participated in some rounds with principals, and what's been really productive about that is we've had conversations about look-fors, like what, what should they be noticing that are content-directed, um, and that's been very helpful. I've received some good feedback from the principals. Um, I definitely think they each have the things that they project to their staffs, like increasing high-quality talk in the classrooms. They're focused on tasks with students. But I do think that it, looking at these resources and even in the conversations we had this year, 
there is work to get more um, more instructional conversations going and how do we engage students. Um, we are blending computer and, and online resources in classrooms, but we need to have conversations that usually go along with a curriculum review about what is most effective. It's like the high yield practices. We need to have more conversations with that and I think we're all excited about having those. And I'll, I'll just add two things yeah. to that. One is that um, we started the year with our curriculum leaders um, and just to, to point out that whenever Mary is, so Kathy typically meets with our curriculum leaders at the elementary level. Sometimes Mary and I might join, but, but Kathy's really kind of running that. And then Mary is meeting with the middle school, but our high school department chair is always part of that. And then I'm always, uh, almost always there so that we have this bridge going sort of all the way through the years. And we started the year with looking at our profile of graduate and saying, if this is the graduate we, we are aiming for, what does learning and teaching look like in a math classroom that is moving us towards critical and creative thinkers, towards collaborators, towards communicators, you know, towards civically engaged, all of those pieces. So we have been threading that conversation throughout, and so then when we got to the resources conversation, and we know there's a lot of research that says high quality instructional materials correlate to um, higher performance and, and higher learning outcomes for students. So as we've had those conversations about materials, we've been talking about what do we want in a pedagogical framework from the materials? What do we want our classes to look like and sound like, and what do we need the resources to provide in order to support that? So it's, it's a thread that's going through, but as Mary said, lots to still come. The other thing I will add is Mary mentioned about professional learning. We were actually on a call today with one of the publishing companies um, as we prepare for our next meeting with the leader, the curriculum leaders, and we will be engaging in some pretty significant professional development to go with whenever the timing turns out to be um, to go with an adoption. And we were talking today, and you know, part of the example was about modeling in the classroom, co-teaching in the classroom. So really digging into that, not just where do you find X, which sometimes that's what PD looks like when you adopt new curriculum is like sort of almost like a scavenger hunt of the new materials. What we were talking about today was really exciting about, you know, what what does it look like co-teaching with our own teachers in our own classrooms with our own students with new materials. So I think there's a lot of exciting possibilities to come. Great. Thanks. Of course. Thank you. And we're ready for Megan Kelty. Thank Hi. you. <laughs> ready for elementary ELA. Um, want to move to the next one? Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> there were some lovely visuals. I know. I there <laughs> the smiles. Like, <laughs> there were some nice pictures there of the ELA in action at the elementary level. So I'll start with the equity of opportunity updates in terms of the assessment. And it's been a very busy fall at the elementary level for literacy in terms of um, assessments. I'll start with a little bit of an update with the preschool. We have piloted 
an early literacy screener this year. I was actually at Finn today. Um, we were doing some um, scoring together of the early of the early literacy screener. It's called the Pelly, and it takes about 15 minutes with each student, and it's alphabet assessing their alphabet skills and what they can do with sounds. Uh, it involves reading a story and seeing what they can do with listening to the story and comprehending it. Um, it's a really engaging, authentic kind of literacy screening. Um, so that has been done this year so far at the preschool with all students who are turning five this, this year. Um, so that's an exciting, um, an exciting addition to the preschool screening. Um, Dibbles 8th, we have transitioned to that in grades K through 2 in Northborough. Previous to COVID, um, as far as I understand, I did just come on board in July of this past summer, but previous to COVID, Northborough was using the Dibbles Next Edition literacy screener at many levels. So now we've transitioned to the newer Dibbles screening tool. And this is a, the Dibbles 8th is um, approved by the Department of Education as an early literacy screening tool. And um, many Northborough teachers this winter volunteered for training in that. So in the fall, it was the reading specialists who ad helped to administer that to the kindergarten through second grade students. But this winter, we had many other uh, teachers, classroom teachers, special education teachers, um, volunteering for training so that they could be a part of that administration as well. Um, and following the screening, um, screening is, is what literacy screeners do is it's a prediction of risk. So it tells us, it's not a diagnostic tool, it doesn't diagnose anything, but it tells us what is, what is the predictive risk here if we don't provide any additional interventions or any additional literacy supports to this student. Um, so following the screening, we this year um, in the fall and the winter at the Northborough schools had data conversations or data meetings where we looked at all the, the data from the screener um, and the, the reading specialist facilitated conversations with classroom teachers and special education teachers and um, ELD teachers were at some of these meetings. And we really just looked carefully at the data. What is it telling us these students need? How can we support them in the classrooms? What literacy approaches are most appropriate for their needs? Um, so that's been really exciting to have those conversations. Um, in terms of high quality instructional practices, this is, it's been, like I said, it's been a busy, busy <laughs> fall for literacy. Um, we have implemented the Hegarty Phonemic Awareness in pre-K through first grade. And I won't get too into the jargon, but in order to become a proficient reader, uh, students need to be trained in really phonological awareness which is how we work with the units of sound of our language and also with the skills of decoding so sort of how do we read the code of our language the sound symbol connection and so the Hegarty phonemic awareness is really training our young students with the sounds of our language and what I mean by that is being able to work at the word level being able to separate spoken words into chunks into syllables into even individual sounds and then being able to to do changes with those sounds. It's an important skill that will um, support reading later on. Um, so that has been really engaging. I'm hearing from many teachers, students are really into it. 
um, some of the principals have had to sort of jump in and uh, as substitutes and they've said that the, t the students have sort of led them and told them no you this is how you do it you know this you get out your choppers and this is how you do it so the students have really en enjoyed that um, engaging um, curriculum and implementation of Project Read Phonics in grades K through three. Project Read Phonics was already in place, but we sort of did a reboot this year to, um, to kind of bring, just bring in the newer materials and have, a, we had several training sessions and, um, and that is to just really be very consistent across classrooms and coherent across grade levels in terms of the phonics um, learning that's happening. And another update this year at the elementary level in terms of instructional practices, uh, connecting to the data conversations um, from the previous slide, is that we're using data uh, to really inform the interventions that are happening for students, whether they're happening in the classroom with the classroom teacher, or whether they're happening um, with the reading specialist in the Northborough School, um, and really trying to have those targeted interventions that are based on data. So that's a lot happening. And in terms of upcoming, we want to continue to refine our assessment toolbox. So we have the Dibbles 8th and we have the Pelly as a screening tool. We also are developing a collection of tools, sort of we call them our dig deeper tools that classroom teachers and reading specialists can use when we need to d dig deeper uh, to get a little bit more information about why a student is struggling with literacy. And very exciting, Dibbles 8th will move to extend to grades three through five beginning in the fall um, in Northborough. So we'll have that, that continuity of screening tool from K through five. And similar to the math, we will be launching a review of curriculum resources um, this coming fall for the reading and writing blocks. So we have our phonics, we have our phonemic awareness, but we wanna take a look at what are we using for the rest of our literacy blocks and, um, and do a review of that. So I think that's it for elementary. Yep. Are there any questions on the elementary? I do have a question. Um, first of all, thank you very much, Megan. Um, and uh, when you were talking about the Pelly screening, um, mm -hmm. that's for our pre-K students? Yes. Okay. Students enrolled in the preschool currently. Okay, perfect. So um, conversations we've had in the past um, have revolved around um, dyslexia. Um, and I know that there has been, I guess, just talks at some of our meetings in the past about, um, uh, you know, giving the supports necessary for those students. Um, however, obviously the Pelly, you said, is not diagnostic. It's a screening. Um, and uh, per me personally, I'm, I'm not sure even what age dyslexia could be um, diagnosed. So um, could you speak a little bit about whether any of the um, screenings you just mentioned can help, um, uh, I guess, figure out which students are in most needs of those supports? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the Dibbles 8th edition is considered an approved screener for dyslexia by the Department of Education. And we, we refer to it as a literacy screener because it tells us so much more than just flagging for um, dyslexic um, profiles. But what it does is it does give us sort of some flags to look for um, at the early levels. And with the Dibbles 8th, for example, 
um, in kindergarten, first grade, we have the letter naming fluency subtest, and we have the phonemic, um, we have the phoneme segmentation subtest. So what we've done as a reading department is for those students who have come up as high risk, that's when we do the dig, the dive, the deeper dive into into those students, and that's when we're providing interventions that are really matched to what is necessary for students who are struggling with the phonological component of our language, and the phonological processing. So, you know, when we think about dyslexia, I won't go too far down this path <laughs> because still someone will bring in the giant hook and take me away. But um, when we think about the subtypes of dyslexia, you know, you have the phonological processing subtype, which is when you're struggling with those pieces I referred to a few minutes ago, the sound symbol connection and the ability to work with the sounds of our language, switching out sounds, breaking sounds apart, blending them together. And then, so those subtests from the Dibbles are really flagging for that phonological type of struggle. Um, we also have another um, part of our screening process was um, a RAND screener as well, rapid automatized naming. So that's another subtype of dyslexia. And so that has allowed us to look at the students who really, um, who flagged on that. And we've had some really nice um, collaboration with a special ed department. I'll give a shout out to, um, to Marie over there in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, to collaborate together about what kind of diagnostic tools we can use to look deeper into those students. So, is that is that and does that answer your question? It does. And then, in, in what sort of part of that process then would you know Marie's team be involved to sort of uh, start maybe the IEP process for students who who need that? Yeah. So what we do is we carefully monitor growth. So what's interesting about dyslexia also is that the definition of dyslexia is about, you know, disfluent or inaccurate reading. And it's hard to be a fluent reader when you're in kindergarten, right? Um, so that it's that sort of that tricky area of providing what we know they need um, as soon as we see that they need it. So that might be through the general education and we're going to be really progress monitoring their growth. The Dibbles 8th is a wonderful progress monitoring tool. So what I mean by progress monitoring is just sort of taking dipstick measures every couple of weeks um, with, those, with those assessments to see, to track the student's growth. So when we see that growth happening, we get a sense that the intervention is really supporting their literacy growth of these foundational literacy skills. When we see that that data is sort of flatlining, that's when we would get to the point of maybe tweaking the intervention um, and seeing how that works. And then um, if we're still seeing the data is, if we're still seeing a struggle, that's when we would start to have those collaborative conversations with the SPED teachers and with the SPED department. Did, Marie, did that? <laughs> is that still called response to intervention RTI? I'm sorry, what was is that? Is it still called RTI, response to intervention? Yeah. <laughs> Funny you should ask. <laughs> it used to be when I was yeah, so working in the area. So, said no. yeah, so, so we not. have actually um, one of our administrative committees this year is the MTSS committee, mm -hmm. Multi-Tiered Systems of Support Committee. Um, the Department of Education has quite a few resources on the Multi-Tiered Systems of Support model, which seems to be sort of where um, schools are shifting now. So we're sort of, and, and I'll let Stephanie take this if I, if I misspeak, yeah. but we're sort of in the transitional period of moving from RTI to MTSS, would you say? Yeah, I mean, really the, the distinction that is being made is that RTI was generally a reactive 
process of when kids hit a struggle, what's our response to that struggle? And multi-tiered systems of support, which is lots of overlapping concepts there, is about trying to create environments, create ways of setting up our classrooms, setting up our teaching and our systems of intervention that we catch people before they fall. Um, and that's really the main distinction when people talk about multi-tiered systems of support compared to RTI, um, or a simple explanation of it. So you'll hear us talking about multi-tiered systems of support and we're really looking at sort of where are, we have all kinds of supports as you can hear that are happening, but we are um, sort of taking stock right now and looking at where there's opportunities for refinement. Interesting, thanks. Thank you. Any other elementary questions before um, we move Just to the a quick one. So um, it seems like we've got a lot for like the PK through two and K through two. So does, do, is there stuff for three through five or? When you say stuff, are you referring to, to well, the, the assessments or to the, the assessing and screenings, it seemed like that. So, that's what so there are a the lot one. of assessments in yeah. literacy happening at grades three through five currently. Mm -hmm. The screening that we're doing at K to two using the Dibble's eighth tool mm -hmm. is not currently happening at three through mm -hmm. five, but it will beginning in the fall. We're moving it up. Um, okay. to, to connect to what Kathy said earlier, this year we've really focused three through five on math assessments, okay. and then in K to two has been more focused on the literacy. So the the idea, the end goal would be there would be assessments for all K through five in both math and literacy eventually. Just trying to phase it in so that And it trying to find the, the right ones mm -hmm. to do and, okay. And, and just, I just want to make sure we're clear on this, like, so the data collection sheets or the data grids, yeah. um, they're often referred to, exist K to five. Yep. Um, Pre-K is also has the PELI, but there's a separate way of collecting mm -hmm. that data. There are literacy assessments and math assessments K to five. Yes. Um, the introduction of new assessments, mm -hmm. the focus was math at three to five and um, literacy at K to two. Mm -hmm but there's a whole set of literacy assessments all the way through and there's a whole set of math assessments all the way through. Yeah. It's just that in our collaborative time and in our professional development, we felt like we could really go deeper if we allowed, because it's all the same people, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. who are doing all these different disciplines. Yeah. We said if we let, they're gonna continue with what they already know in mathematics K to two, and then we'll dive deep on literacy and vice versa at the upper grades. So there is a full set of assessments at all levels. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We'd love to hear about the middle school now. Sure. <laughs> um, so here are some pictures from Melikin. And um, sort of continuing the discussion of Dibbles, um, this year at Melikin, I am pleased to, to share that the literacy team here has tried the Dibbles eighth screening tool with the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders here. And uh, it's been really exciting to be a part of that administration. Um, I was help, you know, I helped administer it with the team here, and we had conversations, looked at the data together, and used that screening data to identify students for um, some additional literacy support through the general education um, here at Malakin. And um, 
high quality instructional practices. Something that the ELA department has continued to work on this year is to uh, continue to analyze the instructional resources in terms of being culturally proficient. Um, and that's, that's ongoing work that has started and it's continuing, and also the collaboration between Mellican and Trottier. So the ELA department had, um, departments had a joint meeting a couple of months ago, and there's actually another joint meeting planned um, later this month um, to really just talk about the resources and instructional approaches, um, and also just to have that, that connection together. So um, that's, that's the middle school update. Um, do you wanna do upcoming? So upcoming, we are pleased to continue the Dibbles 8th screening next year. And this year we had a slower start with it. So typically you have a screening happen fall, winter, and spring. Uh, this year at Malakin, we won't have all three of those assessment windows for the screener. And that's okay, because we were just trying it out and getting it launched. Uh, but this coming year we will have it that fall, winter, and spring, and we'll also um, be crossing over to Trottier as well and bringing it in over there. Uh, so that's, that's something upcoming. And just as we talked about having an assessment toolbox um, at the elementary level um, to look beyond screening, screening tools, but to sort of have that dive deeper, that dig deeper look, we're, we're compiling some assessments, uh, some literacy assessments for um, teachers to have access to at the middle school level. And when I say assessment toolbox, we, we already have assessments available, but just really making sure that we have um, enough, really kind of just taking a look and uh, refreshing that toolbox. Um, and to continue the analysis of the culturally, culturally proficient resources, and then that continued collaboration between the two middle schools. Thank you so much. Any uh, <laughs> more? Yeah. You want yeah. <laughs> I think we already have. <laughs> Any uh, questions about middle school? Well, thank you so much. It's been really great just to hear more about academics. I know that our focus has really been pandemic related these past two years. Oh, yeah. So to really hear about um, all the work that you're doing both in math and ELA, and it's been a lot. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate hearing those updates um, and uh, seeing sort of the future of both math and ELA. So thank you so much for being here tonight. Appreciate I it. just want to just yeah. jump in and thank these three wonderful leaders. Um, they, I think your point about the pandemic, like it's really tremendous what has been happening um, with their leadership during a pandemic. And um, just so impressed with all that they're doing, um, the ways that they're supporting teachers and helping teachers to make these um, shifts where there are shifts to support the ongoing practice and um, deal with the ever-changing landscape we are in. So it's a pleasure to work with them and to watch them work with teachers. So thank you all for all that you're doing. Thank you. And Mr. Martin, do you have anything? Sure. So I'd love to comment. So first of all, I want to thank uh, Dr. Reinhorn for her leadership and, um, you know, the, the three leaders that presented this evening. They did an outstanding job. I think this is um, part of our vision that we've talked about around building capacity. Um, and they have done an outstanding job um, partnering with our educators and really helping support the work that happens in the classroom. And behind all of this work, too, are teachers who are putting a tremendous amount of effort on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, I think that's really important to highlight. And then um, and Kathy Lazat is not new to, yes. to the role. Mm -hmm. So she's been um, 
a leader in our district for, for many years, and now we've um, kind of shifted her over to North Pro as a, in addition to South Pro. So thank you for your leadership, and um, uh, it's exciting work, and we look forward to seeing it grow in the future. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Can I take a moment for some seat changes? <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Thank you. So that brings us to our last um, item of new business, which is um, our hub testing report. So there is an update on some of the progress made at Proctor School. So I'm going to um, hand it over to the superintendent. Sure. So unfortunately, we have to go to curriculum-related issues, <laughs> to operational um, <laughs> challenges. So this is much less exciting, but uh, very important as well. So as the committee knows, um, we did identify mold at Proctor School um, this fall. And as a result, um, you know, we implemented our mold mitigation protocols that were in place and also looked at how we can ensure that this does not happen in the future. So under um, Assistant Superintendent Lavoie's leadership, um, he worked closely with Hub Testing, um, who is our consultant who we um, work with very closely when we have events like this. And this evening, Mr. Lavoie will provide an update of the work that has been done and the work that will be happening in the next several months. That's right. Uh, thank you, Superintendent. Actually, the timing of this is perfect because I do have a lot to report on and a lot of good progress uh, that has been made. So as the Superintendent mentioned, in September of 2021, uh, the staff at the Proctor School identified mold that was present on furniture and other items in classrooms and other storage areas. And as a result, we initiated our mitigation protocol. We also went forward and purchased standalone dehumidifiers to be uh, to help with the improvement of the classroom conditions. And thirdly, like the superintendent mentioned, we contracted with Hub Testing to analyze the environment and provide recommendations on how to remedy uh, the situation. So this is to provide you with an update on what was done. So immediately after the discovery, all internal classrooms um, and storage areas were inspected and that uh, inspection continued uh, for about a six to eight week period from the uh, time it was identified through when we got into the winter months and it has since slowed. However, the um, facilities team still does uh, spot checks of different, different areas. Uh, dehumidification was uh, an immediately identified and one thing to note about this time frame is that our summer was one of the wettest in, in, in the history of ever we've had um, and that did provide conditions in the region uh, that were, were problematic and hub testing did reflect upon that in, the, in their report to us. And the good things that we were already doing is we were monitoring carbon dioxide which also helped out with the entire you know really looking into the classrooms environments themselves. And and I do want to thank um, certainly Principal Sear. Her work around this was outstanding, really helping with the conditions, doing everything she could possible for the teachers and the students was evident throughout coming in on weekends, uh, emptying dehumidifiers. Superintendent did it a few times too. Uh, so all those things were very done proactively even before hub testing provided us with their, with their final recommendations because we knew those were things that had to be done. But as a result of the uh, hub report, 
we did move forward with some uh, external reviews, and that's one of the things I'm going to get into um, some detail about um, tonight. And then later in the agenda, we will discuss MSBA, which Lauren and I had an opportunity to discuss uh, just prior to the start of the um, meeting. So really, I wanted to kind of put this into four different pockets. We've already kind of reviewed the hub testing, and certainly they came forward with a series of recommendations. And then two through four were the, the main key points of the recommendations that were made. So one of the first things we, we did is we wanted to analyze uh, the drainage conditions off of the Proctor School and the roof conditions that existed. And we were provided with two uh, separate independent reports of each other all saying the same thing, which we will get to later down the road. Uh, Hub also said that anything in the uh, facility, as much as possible, that was of an organic material, even cardboard and things of that nature, uh, should, should be removed to the extent feasible. So we did do a nice purging uh, of the Proctor School and were able to um, really reduce the amount of unneeded storage items um, and other classroom materials that were, were problematic. So for example, some of the bookcases were of a you know particle board material. Uh, those were removed and we have been able to purchase and replace that with uh, metal bookcases which are not going to be problematic and you know going forward the last part of, and we added air conditioning and that's the thing that just finally occurred actually over February break the classrooms that did not have air conditioning uh, pr prior to this event now has air conditioning inside so that was a pleasant surprise for the staff to come back to uh, the the classrooms had retrofitted window units that were put in and everything has been installed and is working um, well so that was a combination of not just the purchasing of the units um, but the um, adding of the electrical capacity in order to have them run and then the physical installation of them themselves so that is all complete now and uh, hope in, in perfect timing before we have any type of humid weather um, you know down the road and the last is about the drown, uh, downspout and drainage, which I feel is the most significant outcome uh, you know from this event and that's what I kind of share in more detail about so you may not be aware by just looking at the Proctor School, but it, and it's indicated by those uh, highlighted pieces, and these um, are uh, the downspouts for uh, the roof and are surrounded by an encased, which we call a chase, uh, that protects what is under there now is a wrought iron downspout. So what we discovered, and we did an inspection of, of all of these, is that them all of them needed to be replaced so over the years uh, they have deteriorated and and it caused a problem and I'm going to be able to show a picture of it you know pr pretty clearly but it wasn't just about the downsouts themselves we wanted to make sure we were doing some other general maintenance items like power washing and mulch maintenance so these were all things that were part of the hub testing report to make sure we were reducing any type of uh, factors that would, would would create mold and this was certainly at the top of the list so here is uh, the, the back of the building, just to show you a little bit more about these downspouts. So wherever you see those chases, that is an actual drain that comes off of the roof and is, is in an area that you know, we would have to um, you know, do some maintenance on. So this is what we discovered. So when we opened up the chase, the photo on the left, and I hope you can see that well, is a, a wrought iron downspout that was underneath that so we had to pop off the chase itself and then when you look at it this particular one is completely separated from the roof bell drain 
So this is an example where the roof, it's a, it's a flat roof, and there is a, uh, a bell on top that captures the water, and the water's supposed to go into that bell, and then feed down this downspout, and then leach out underneath, underneath the back parking lot. This is uh, right at the corner of, um, actually this is in the front of the building. I take that back. This is in the, in the front of the building. And what we did through the initial phase is we want to make sure we created a prototype for what we wanted to do to replace all 19 of these. So one of the 19 uh, was done and this is the prototype that we did and we were able to do it with PVC, which was far less expensive than cast iron and does meet any, every, all the code violate, um, um, necessary codes. What's going to happen after, what happened after this is that the chase can be put back and then we've, we've, we've guaranteed some good draining. The other part that happened with this, and that's why I kind of wanted to show this first, is during the process of analysis, we didn't want to just start at the bell and, and go to the downspout. We want to make sure that after the water would go down the spout, it was leaching properly. So as part of the analysis from Greenwood Roofing is they put a camera down through each of the drainage and determined how far it was able to get out. So they were able to go out, in some cases, 200 feet. We did discover two locations where that drainage did stop at a point where the PVC that is underground had been compromised. So that is part of some future work that we're going to be doing, and I'll mention that when we get to the financial analysis of, of, of all the work that's been done and will need to be done. So we kind of started from the ground and worked our way up. And then later this evening, we'll discuss uh, more about what's left to do on the roof itself, you know, which is ultimately you know, recommending the replacement of the flat roof at the Proctor School. Okay, so when we get down to the dollar and cents of everything. This is uh, page one of two. It was a very comprehensive process, but like we've as we've mentioned so far, hub testing was contracted with. We were able to purchase dehumidifiers uh, for, for the spaces. And then we had a series of classroom items that needed to be replaced from book stands to easels and bookcases and music chairs. All four of those different um, uh, classroom materials have already been received and actually we're in the process now of um, putting together the bookcases and getting them deployed. Um, so that is actually almost to the end of that, but all the other items have been replaced. And when needed, the items that it was currently existing had been removed and, and discarded. So we've been able to do that for all the identified things from the hub, hub report. The second page of this gets into a little more of the uh, facilities end of things, where we did contract with uh, Greenwood Roofing and they did the downspout jetting. So in addition to putting a scope down there, they also were able to blow out through high pressure, air pressure, blow out any debris that had been in the drainage system to give it kind of cleaning your gutters, but underground. That's the type of work they did and really were able to blow it out to a point where um, they were able to assess all 19 of the downspouts that existed. Greenwood also was the company that uh, created the downspout prototype. So like I showed in that earlier image, they're the one that came in and did the work uh, for the PVC and gave us that as their recommendation. And at the end, they were able to give us a written report. So we, we, um, they were an amazing uh, company to work with and provided us with, with, with some great product and met all our expectations. The Garland Company was the secondary roofing uh, consultant that we've brought in. Garland has been um, 
uh, involved in the district for many years. Uh, they've worked with us on all our roofs in Northboro and Southboro to assess their conditions, and that is something that we're able to get at, at no cost. And we have a, a wonderful consultant that we've depended on through that, so we do have a report from, from him as well. Suburban Glass, uh, they were the company that we contracted with through an RFQ, so I worked uh, closely with Becky, and we did put out an RFQ for air conditioners and the window retrofit. And that did come to a total of uh, j just over $20, $26,000 to get that work done. And instead of in progress, that should say completed because that was just done over February break. Renault Electric was needed in order to get the electrical capacity necessary to run the air conditioners in the additional classrooms. And that was done for $16,000. And then what's left are the last two items, and, but we do have some estimates on what we think it's going to be. So to uh, change the cast iron downspouts to BVC and to make sure they have a secure connection to the bells that are on the roof, like I described, is estimated to be uh, just short of $29,000. And then the two areas where the drainage had been compromised we're estimating at being about 5,600. 5, so after all is said and done, we're looking close to uh, $124,000 worth of work to get us into a really good position for, for the spring. Um, and we are looking forward to hopefully crossing all those T's and dotting the I's. Um, the superintendent has worked closely with the town on making sure that we're, we're supported through all of this. And uh, we're, we're hopeful that uh, we'll be able to get this all complete before uh, the end of the school year, if all goes well. So that's our plan. Thank you so much. Yeah, Keith. my pleasure. Um, I think that we probably have some questions. I, absolutely, I'm ready. Absolutely. Yes, Keith. Thanks. Um, good info. Great presentation. You're welcome. Appreciate the pictures always. You mm -hmm. always do lots of pictures. If I attempted to explain that, I would have done an awful job. You so. Just talk about it. But it means nothing until you see the picture. Yep. Um, would you like me to go back to them, or are you no, good? good? Okay. Do you expect Greenwood to bid on the downspouts? They may. They may. They may. But they are, they generally just focus on the, the roof. They have a small part of their company that does do the plumbing, which technically this is. So they might not be interested in the full scope of the 18 remaining downspouts. How many do you look, and it might be for Becky too, what do you look for when you do an RFQ, like a few, three, five? Is there a target on how many bids you get? So for something like this, it's falling in between the ten dollars to $50,000 range, so mm -hmm. it would be a request for, for quotation, mm -hmm. and we have to come up with a scope of work. So we did use the information we received from the report to create that scope of work. Sure. It's actually ready to go. And then our hope is that we can, we, we're going to solicit uh, to as many uh, plumbers that would be interested, and then we would have to get a minimum of three responses. Minimum of three? Yeah. And something like the electrical, is that also put out to bid? How do we assure it's a competitive price? They were competitive. That's our okay. contractor that we've, we are under contract with. We went out for RFP for, no, RFQ. IFB. IFB for that. <laughs> so that was invitation for bid for electrical contractors this past spring. And uh, Renault was the awarded contract. We so use them regularly? We do. Oh, okay. They're our regular contract. And because electrical is probably fairly common, it's, it's good to have somebody almost on retainer, somebody you work with regularly. Absolutely. For your okay. We have that for electrical, plumbing, and HVAC. Got it. And, and trash. <laughs> the inner workings. The inner workings. I don't know what's happening with this. Uh, I'll send. Thank you. Great. Thank yep. you. Any other questions? Yes, Kelly. A um, couple questions. Um, so we had to increase the electrical panels, I'm assuming, things like that. 
Are we envisioning increase in electrical expenses and bills down the line because of all of these units running? And has that been accounted for in the budget? We, we've, ident we've identified it. I think what we're, we, we were able to purchase is some high efficiency items. Yeah. I think now nothing is, we're not expecting it to you know, explode on us, but certainly we're going to account for you know, some additional cost. Um, we're also intending to have those run like in a, a, um, a low draw mode as much as can so we can maintain the humidity mm -hmm. and kind of see how that goes. That's going to be the type of practice we have going forward. So. We're, we're going to be using them regularly to mm -hmm. control the conditions, and we hope it doesn't create a huge, a huge spike on us. Yeah. Yeah. So just a general comment, too. Um, this is a second experience of mold at Proctor School, mm, as you're right. aware. Yeah. Um, the last, in 2017, it was a $220,000 expense. This is approaching $125,000. So this is... This is costly, and this is not money that was budgeted in our operational budget. So this is um, coming out of our operational budget and a combination of grants and a combination of working mm -hmm. with the town. So mm -hmm. I think it's really important that that this is expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and the electricity costs, as a result of air conditioning, this would take years for us to get to these levels that we're um, having to mitigate and um, react to mold situations. So. Um, Although the air conditioning will add an increased mm -hmm. cost, we also can anticipate in the future with climate change, mm -hmm. more humid weather, um, that all of our buildings are gonna re require some type of HVAC improvements. Mm -hmm. And I think Lincoln Street School is a great example of, you know, Lincoln Street School is, is the place to be <laughs> when it's humid um, and it's, it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. The one, Keith, the one thing I'll just share is that mm -hmm. the hub testing the hub consultant basically said, we need to control the environment. Right. And therefore, you need to be able to control the humidity levels. And the way we do that is through air conditioning and dehumidification um, and trying to mitigate some of the water, um, you know, the drainage, the water that's not, you know, leaving the perimeter of the building. It's just sitting at the perimeter of the building. So um, it's multifaceted, but I think that um, Keith's plan is a good plan, and we're confident that this will help mitigate any future issues. Um, thank you. So the downspouts, the, the jetty, so all of those downspouts, they go underneath then like the beds, the flower beds, and all mm -hmm. the, none of that stuff has to be replaced, the only, underground? Only two. Only two. Only two spots did the underground's jetting and scoping identify that the drainage beyond the building was, uh -huh. was compromised. Okay, so then everything else is just the, from the ground up Correct. being replaced. Okay. Yep. And I should have had that bell, uh, picture of the bell the, from the roof, because well, that's that, important that, to understand. That was what I was going to say, is yeah. I'm, I'm missing a picture of the roof here. Sorry. Which that was visual. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a visual person. I like the vision. But that brings me to the the other issue of the roof itself. Because I know, and I don't know if we talk about that later. I mean, with MSB or whatever. But it's all part of this. It's all part of the same. Yeah. So um, all of these issues have nothing to do with the actual roof? Or the way that was like, described. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it yeah. the cost? You know what I mean? Like, does it. Are these going to help because we're putting off the roof? Because, I mean, that's what they said, right? The hub said we need a new roof. Like, that's 
that's what they said. That's one of one of their many factors. Many things is the right. roof that's you know the drainage off the roof, so it, it not being able to the water collecting at the base yeah. of um, the proctor school at the perimeter. Yeah. There's no place, and it's it's not there's you know it just collects and then it seeps up. And yeah. The water table rises, so um, hub testing did identify that as the most significant in terms of trying to reduce the amount of moisture. But also the roof is another layer of what we need to do. Correct. So base, the way our approach was is we started from the ground and we literally went underground to look and to have a camera and then we're working our way back up to the roof. Mm -hmm. So the hope is by the end of the spring we've taken care of all the drainage issues, brought it back up and connected properly to the roof. Mm -hmm. And then the last major layer, which we're all aware of, is to replace the flat roof you know, at the Proctor School, which has been the recommendation of uh, both of the roofing reports that we received. Mm -hmm. I think it might actually make sense if we could move our MSBA update now, um, since it seems to flow pretty well. Any um, objection to that? No. All right. Um, so, Keith, would you mind providing? Yeah, I can. I, I can certainly intro, and then and, and Greg can help out. Um, so. I'll act it out. You'll act it out. Um, no pictures, <laughs> though. Um, so kind of leading off, and this would be a nice nice segue, is to say that the, for, for many years the staff at the Proctor School has done a great job of trying to reduce the water retention on the roof, whether by squeegeeing it down the downspouts, which we now know are defective, or, you know, just trying to make sure we didn't have any of the pooling that would ultimately, you know, result in a compromised uh, membrane. So, you know, I think we've... Um, done some good due diligence when it comes to getting these reports because typically getting two uh, assessments is important to start uh, the process and we have um, you know with your consent and the Board of Selectmen which happened earlier this week got the consent to the superintendent to submit a statement of interest to the Massachusetts School Building Authority which I'm preparing and the next actually it's done, it's ready to go and I was mentioning to Lauren that she has two more signatures to give uh, electronically and then we'll be sending it off to MSBA. And the hope is that we can get in the queue. Uh, the, the Proctor roof does meet the minimum criteria. The minimum criteria to apply for uh, a, the grant through MSBA is 25 years and the roof on top of Proctor, the flat roof, on top of Proctor is 28 years old, or will be 28 years old by the end of this application cycle. Uh, so we are confident that it meets the minimum criteria. Now it's whether or not the MSBA would invite us in to uh, the feasibility side of things and then provide us with the opportunity to be awarded a grant, which wouldn't take care of all the cost of a new roof, um, which is estimated at 1.6 million. Uh, but would, you know, could take a percentage of that and really help um, the, the town get it done. So that's always a good first step to take, whether or not it's accepted this time or the next time or we can find an alternative solution is certainly something we're going to explore. Great. Do you want anything to that? No, I would just add we've had conversations with the town administrator oh, yeah. as well. And, um, you know, the town administrator has shared that he, you know, is allocating some ARPA funding um, to this project, um, but going through MSBA is important because of the reimbursement rate. It is anywhere between 40 and 50 percent, and when you're expending 1.6 million dollars, 40 to 50 percent of the cost of that project is significant. Um, and then Town Administrator Kader said that you know he's looking at the ARPA funding to 
uh, pay for the rest of, of the cost of the roof. Thank you. Any questions? No, I mean, I, I, my only thing is, you know, and, and I appreciate that, but I just, again, I just, the actual issues that have been having in the school, mm -hmm. so the idea that this is still going to be like two years down, and I know we're m doing as best as we can. Sure. I just, I wish there was some way to be able to get it done quicker just for the sake of our wallets and the safety and health of our kids and our staff and faculty and everybody working in the buildings with and we don't disagree with yeah. you i think no, that, I um, keith and his team has done a nice job of doing a thorough assessment of all our roofs we have a good inventory of of, of the roofs we did not have that prior to um you know some of the assessments keith has done um this is the first year that would have been eligible for msba um the accelerated repair project so that's important to know mm -hmm and um some of the we have three areas where we do know that there are leaks keith and his team are working on mitigating those leaks so they stop um, so we can just buy some time so we can go through this process and that is the plan so we did uh after the last we had an additional roof leak that's come up in the last couple of weeks and we've contacted the contractor and we're trying to get them out there in fact i said let's let's get going again yesterday to you know prod them just to get an idea of what we're dealing with you know are we simply dealing with something that can be patched do we have to wait till it's completely bone dry for a couple months before we can even do anything you know replace some flashing some low-end work that would be absolutely something we could do now uh, that would be reasonable um, but you know if they were to come in and say that you know the leak is pervasive we'd have to replace a whole different section that it just makes it a different conversation so our hope that the ones that we have now we know one can be repaired rather simply and easily we're sure the others because they haven't been thoroughly inspected by an expert mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we're waiting on right now and I, I'll be able to provide an update you know next month with where we are my husband was joking around about getting the flex seal the flex seal he's like he's like how much is a case of that let's just get a case of that let's, we'll just fix that that was Nikki's <laughs> idea I said <laughs> that. Right? I, mean, I mean I feel like the guy on the commercial <laughs> Thank you. Quick question. So sure. if we're not approved for the MSBA, mm -hmm. do we have like a backup plan? Yeah, I think we would have to move forward with okay. a capital project. Um, okay. You know, yeah. again, it, you know, more costly, but that is the contingency. Okay. You know, we can't. Not. I think we can, we need to move through the MSBA process. We yep. need to hear if we're invited in to the eligibility phase. And if we're not, then we have to a different pathway which okay. is basically seeking funding through um the town right. voters yeah. and when do you hear if we're accepted into the msba uh, typically what, september october yeah they meet every other month okay. so um and i think COVID has interrupted that some of their so they're starting to get back on track they are so that the um accelerator repair program which was the program that we would be applying for the deadline of that is late april uh, that's when the final submissions can be put in um, and then to, what what do we get for Finn when did we hear back do you remember was remember. it September October yeah. yeah it was something like that it was sometime in the um, hopefully earlier fall uh, if they can get back on our schedule um, and then like you said your time was pretty accurate with where we kind of start get the approval needed because it isn't going to cover the grant won't cover the entire cost it'll cost you know be up to 40 percent um, of it um, and we just did a accelerator repair pro uh, 
uh, project in um, Southboro, and we were able to move relatively quickly, quicker than expected, and that was in the middle of the pandemic. So the hope is that that's all going to become easier. And we've already identified, actually, through our consultants, a couple of roofing contractors that have done this type of work, have some good, great new materials that are uh, relatively available. Uh, and so that's always a good sign to know you would have people that would bid on it. That would be the worst thing. You send it out to bid, and then no one bids. And then we are buying a case of Flexio and going for it. So uh, we'll, we'll avoid that. Well, I think that, um, too, with working with MSBA, this is what they do. Yeah, they, right. They have vetted contractors, vetted projects, and um, people who they are trust trust in the industry, and it's a much smoother process. Um, and I think there's some safeguards in place through MSPA that we might not have if we funded a roof project on our own. Thank you so much. And Keith, thank you for your very thorough presentation. Well, All the pictures were much appreciated. Not enough pictures. Of, uh, I need, uh, I need uh, a duly noticed. A bell. So now we're going to move into old business. Uh, we do have a COVID update um, from Mary Ellen. Um, she's going to come center stage. <laughs> I think we've got a lot of it. <laughs> Thank you, Mary Ellen. Mr. Martino, do you want to share the dashboard? Maybe that's the easiest way to do it. Oh. One second, Gray. I just got to turn it back on. I was active. I think um, our numbers are stable. We had um, eight cases in the district the past two weeks, which is nice, I think. The week of vacation, Northboro might have only had one case that we were notified of. And then this past week, um, I guess I could pull up my dashboard and tell you about it. Um, this past week, there were just a couple of cases. So, um, which is nice to see that leveling off and just a small number of cases. Um, as you know, on the dashboard, since we stopped contact tracing, we do do the daily counts for each classroom in the elementary schools where people can um, go to the dashboard and um, each of the elementary schools has a link to that school with the cla with the um, each classroom listed and the cases that were in that classroom. This past week, I did include um, cases from the week before break and um, break so that people would kind of have a idea of what's been going on. Um, but the case counts have been really low, which is wonderful to see. Um, we have an, an no known in school transmission and um, no possible or probable that we know of. We've had no clusters since we stopped contact tracing that we've had to follow through on. Um, our vaccination rates are still um, in the upper 60s, but I've been talking to both boards of health this week about holding another vaccine clinic um, in the next few weeks um, and just to have it available to people that want it. We are um, focusing on some of our communities that um, where the lower rates are. Um, I'm working with Rota Webb on that um, and some interpreters to get that message out just in case they, the our, our English learners haven't really gotten the message in the ways that they needed it the most. So um, our 
weekly screening is still taking place every Monday. We had about 1,300 people this past Monday, which was a number I was happy with because I, coming back from break, I didn't expect that many people to do it. We only had one positive case from um, those 1,300 tests that were sent in. Um, we've been doing symptomatic testing at school. When people become symptomatic at school, we've had no positive um, people from that testing this week. And our antigen testing um, on Thursdays, I've not been notified of any positives as of yet. Um, we do have the, that opt, that form to notify us of positive um, cases, and people have been if they test throughout the week and not specifically on the Thursdays with our tests. We do get notified of that. So all in all, things are looking very positive in the COVID front, where it looks like we're trending in the right direction. Yeah, <laughs> it's only good positive. I'm not talking about COVID, <laughs> a positive trend. So Perfect. Keith, I know you had a general question. Oh, it was more so around how are we doing with returning cafeterias and things to normal with furniture and Okay, so yeah. Keith, <laughs> this is a discussion Keith and I have every day, I feel like. We, what's, um, what's it looking like now? So right now the high school is at, has always been just regular tables. Um, the middle schools, we are, Keith, you might be a better person because you've been in touch, <laughs> but we're, it's a slow roll back to normal is what we're doing it just um, operationally and just logically to do it in a logical way like we've done everything throughout this whole pandemic and i think that we're not going to throw everybody back in at tables mm -hmm. in the event that we had to go we would have to go backwards so i think we will look at the middle schools next mm -hmm. and they would move to tables and tables is that correct tables and okay, 21st i don't want to misspeak so Tables um, at the middle school would be next, and that would be um, the goal for that is towards the end of the month. Mm -hmm. And then um, after we watch the data for a few weeks of, with the masks um, optional, and then following that, we would probably start at the elementary schools with the schools where the, the gyms are impacted, where the cafeterias have moved to the gyms so we could have the space and it would be moving it back to the way it was the beginning of the school year, three feet um, in the cafeterias, desks at three feet. And then the goal is to, after April vacation, probably have it back to tables in the cafeteria the way that we knew it two years ago. And, and the way things go, each school's a little, little different with what their needs are. Some are using the gym as an auxiliary calf. We'd like to get them back uh, to normal as soon as possible. But after, you know, today, today's vote, we want to let this breathe for a little bit, no pun intended, and then, and then see kind of how things go. Um, and if we do get, you know, some, you know, a good, good momentum in that area, we may see the cafeteria tables back sooner um, then April break. Um, but that'll be something that we, each school is a little different. We're working with the principals and making sure that it's it's a good move to make, you know, for the staff, the students, and logistically. Like, for example, you know, schools have authors visiting, and they benefited from having the desk the way they were in the CAF. They might hold it for a little bit to get through that type of event so they can have it safely, and then we'd move towards getting the CAF tables back. So every school is going to be a little different. It's not a set timeline by any chance, but Mary Ellen says it very well. It'll be uh, gradual and to the best interest of the individual building. So I'll just add to um, it takes people power. It does. To make these moves. And in Northboro, we do have storage containers that are packed full. Mm -hmm. um, 
<coughs> materials and equipment and, and furniture that we moved into. So it's also unpacking those storage containers, getting the cafeteria tables out and putting many of the desks in. So it's a logistical challenge and a people power challenge as well. Are those containers on site at buildings? Yep. Mm -hmm. I really noticed. Yep. That's yeah. why we hide them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one, one per building. The big oh, eagle. Okay. <laughs> Under the invisibility cloaks. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I haven't looked for them, I guess. And then when we take when we take the items out, you know, making sure they get a thorough cleaning, we inspect them, make sure they're, you know, operating properly and all that type of thing. It just takes a little bit of time, but I think the team is eager to, you know, get there and we'll, <clears throat> we'll do it, you know, systematically. It's funny, throughout all this, it's the lunch, as a parent, it's what you hear about. Mm. Lunch was very uncool for a long time. Yeah. It's the social yeah. part of the day. <laughs> it's the social part of the day, right? Yeah. Not yeah. when you're in the It's way more important than <laughs> Not when you're in the hallway. Like it's still in the hallway. Yeah. And Aaron, that's a great example of the things that we are going to try to take care of as soon as we can. We want to get the kids at least back into the cafeterias. Sure. That, will yes. that will shift faster than bringing out the tables out of, yes, out of the storage. Three, the back so. to three feet in the cafeteria will Correct. be that the will, first. That will go over well. The cafe in the hallway. <laughs> Uh, Kelly, did you have something mm -hmm. to add? Um, I was going to ask about, um, I know you mentioned earlier about the vaccination less studies and those types of things and how three of the four elementary schools are, you know, in the high 60s, but, you know, Proctor's, you know, high 50s. Has there been any reach out to families to see why they're choosing not to get vaccinated? I think that's a fine line. <laughs> I'm just curious, like, is it worth, and I'm, and I'm asking in the sense of, like, you were talking about doing another clinic and other uh, things. And it's like, well, if these people are hard-nosed, does it make sense to do, take the time and energy and all those people, power and sources, resources to run those clinics and do it if these people aren't going to come anyways? Like, so, so we like have 874 like students in our district who are not vaccinated. Yeah. So I think making it easy for those who might be thinking about getting vaccinated, I think this is probably, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks and then now with the reports that have come out this week is probably not the best time to be doing it. But I think there's people who really haven't had that um, outreach that might need the outreach. So will we push it a little bit more in the schools? Yes, I think that yeah. we need to, you know, drum it up, drum up business a yeah. little bit maybe. And yeah, I'm just curious if it's been are. reached out to see like where they, like are they hard nose? Are they, it's just, it's not convenient times if it's not, you know what I mean? Like I'm curious why the 800 and whatever have chosen not to yet. Like I think we're seeing slowly yeah. people are getting vaccinated, the people who are waiting to see what happened, you know, so like, it could be a waiting to see how other people react. It could be it. Um, it didn't fit my schedule over Thanksgiving, and now I want, you know, and um, yeah, and it was, you I know, just, typically what we expect is that third of people will come right away. Mm -hmm. There'll be a third of people who wait to see, and then the, probably the third of people that are. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, and then the other question was just, um, and again, I think we've talked about it before, and I think it's about things, but. I've heard community people saying that, you know, we're always talking about the student vaccination, but what about the faculty vaccination rate? And how was that in the district? And so I know it walks a fine line because of the adults and health and violation 
HIPAA and codes and but that's just been something that you know why is it okay to publish about kids and not faculty is what I've been hearing around the community. So we did do a survey yeah. of vaccination rates of our faculty mm -hmm. and staff it was um, anonymous and optional mm -hmm. of our uh, approximately 800 employees we had 600 participate mm -hmm. and of those 600 we had approximately I believe 12 employees who weren't vaccinated mm -hmm. so we have a very high vaccination rate mm -hmm. of the people who responded to the survey mm -hmm. um, the population size was large enough where you can extrapolate that you know it's a small fraction of people faculty and staff who are not vaccinated mm -hmm. Any other questions for Mary Ellen? Good. Thank you. Mary Ellen, thanks for all your time tonight. I know you've been doing a lot this evening, so we really appreciate it. All right, my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so that brings us to our next item of old business. So we have um, our grade configuration study group. Um, so Mr. Martin, an update from you? Sure. So. Um, the grade configuration study group has continued its work. The working groups have um, conducted uh, meetings in, in continuing the work moving forward. Um, we are on target to um, create a report that will present to the committee in April. Um, and I think that I'll, I'll, I'm seeing a lot of the products come forward in terms of the analysis and the data that's being collected. Um, and each working group is doing a great job. We are working on um, crafting a survey that will be um, sending out to the school communities, um, the larger town community, um, to get input and feedback around some of the ideas and thinking that has taken place. So all in all, I think it's going very well. Um, great conversations and great discussions are taking place, and um, more information to follow. Thank you. Um, I think it was... Kathy Lazat was talking about how um, there are partner schools in our district and they work together um, regarding curriculum. Has that been part of your conversation? Yeah, so those are the types of conversations that um, working groups have had. You know, right now your, your team in a neighborhood school is a team of two, um, where if we had partner schools, one of the advantages could be that you'd have a team of four. You know, you'd have four fourth grade teachers working together. Um, which is powerful in terms of teaming and looking at data and also placing students in classrooms. So there, you know, those are two advantages, um, but there's also some disadvantages that are being discussed. Okay, thank you. All right, so since we already talked about the MSBA um, update for the roof, we're going to move on to the superintendent's report to the committee. Sure, so I will start with enrollments. So in your packet, um, are there enrollments? as of um, February 18th, 2022, and our current enrollment is 1,546. And it's really interesting, we're seven students less than the NESDEC projected, so it's very close. And we're anticipating for next year enrollments to be 1,566. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. Any enrollment questions? All right, we can move on. Uh, also in your packet is the FY22 monthly general awesome. fund expenditure report, and I'll turn it over to Becky. Hi again. Um, so we're closing in on the final four months of um, fiscal year 2022. Um, as of February 28th, we had just under $110,000 remaining on the budget, or 0.42%. 
um, for fiscal year 22. At the same time last year, we had 396,000 or 1.56% remaining. Um, I have been meeting with all of the principals and with all of the directors um, just to go over any anticipated expenses that they um, may know of um, for the remainder of the school year. And I know I've said this before, but my team and I have gone through this budget line by line um, to make sure that um, anything that we are aware of has been encumbered. So it is already planned and it is already included in these numbers. Um, I will also say that we've also identified some expenses that could be moved onto some of our ESSER grant funding if that is needed as well. So we do have some contingencies in place. Um, areas that we are watching closely, again, are substitutes, um, heating and electricity, our custodial overtime, no more snow, um, and special education, uh, transportation as well. So those are really the, the key areas that we are watching. Um, and I welcome any questions on the budget. Any questions? <coughs> we are looking for a vote tonight. I have a motion. Yes. I move that we approve until audited the monthly general fund expenditure report, uh, FY22, as of February 28, 2022. Second. Any discussion? All right. All those in favor? Excellent. Passes unanimously. Thank you very much, Becky. So also in your packet is the FY23 school committee approved budget. Um, and I just want to note of a um, upcoming date. So March 10th, uh, next Thursday is the meeting with Northboro Appropriations. Um, and I will send out a meeting invite probably in the next day or two. Virtual or in person? I'm not sure. I think most likely virtual, but I'll, I'll confirm. Also in your, um, in your packet is the FY23 budget book, and that is a, a combined effort at the central office with a finance team, the HR team, um, Cheryl Leffrey, um, Nancy Bissett, and it contains a, a wealth of information. Um, we have provided um, virtual copies of the budget booklet to um, the town administrator, and we have printed out 10 copies in preparation for our March 10th meeting. Thank you. And that concludes the superintendent's report to the committee. Thank you. Um, next, we're going to move on to school committee member reports. Does anything, anyone have anything they'd like to share from their subcommittees um, or liaison appointments? Sure. I I'm sure Kelly does. Yeah. <laughs> Any <laughs> trivia night coming okay. up? <laughs> oh, that, I, that's Joan that's now. Joan. That's Joan now. But uh, yes, NAF trivia nights coming up. Trying to find a 12 year, an under 13 year old for my team. Just going to put it out there. Does a, a six month right old count? <laughs> <laughs> I only own 13 year olds and I'm older. <laughs> um, <laughs> the upcoming NSPAC event is um, the executive function workshop by Sarah Ward. And that is on Monday, March 28th at 7 to 9 p.m. And it is virtual. And you can go to their webpage, nspac.org, um, and click on upcoming events. And you can register on their website for that. Um, and I think that was. Um, and then on April 28th, um, 
understanding the IEP presentation of the Federation for the Children with Special Needs um, is on Thursday, April 28th from 6.30 to 8.30. And that will be um, also virtual and you can register for the event online. Kelly. And then solar, we met Dead. and we had um, a presentation from two companies, what did you yep. company Fair. groups, um, about um, what they could offer our district in the sense of they would be kind of like the liaison type and they would go out and mm. work the contracts and things like that. So we, we talked with those two and met them about um, and they were meeting again next week. Next week, I think it's next week, um, to discuss how we want to proceed with going forward with those companies Great. and things like that. Um, we did meet superintendent advisory committee. <coughs> yep. I don't think there's much to report. No updates, mostly just updates. Talked about budgets. Yeah. Budgets and COVID. Budgets and COVID. <laughs> budgets and COVID. Budgets and COVID. We did get for field trips, but I hear that's kind of on hold right now, correct? Because of nursing, Marianne. <laughs> yeah. Because I won't throw you on Yeah, because you have to send a nurse with, uh, for a field trip, if you do an off-site field trip, you, you have, have to, to send, send a nurse. But right now, we don't really have substitute nurse budgets, so correct. you can't really mm. add to that, you know? Correct. Um, but we remain optimistic. Mm -hmm. There's also <laughs> significant bus busing. Yeah. The busing is very difficult to get buses to get during the daytime, and yeah. So there's people are considering things, but it's really there's a, some obstacles. Yes, we're working on working through this. Any other reports? I think that was it. Right. All right. Bless you. I have nothing either. So next we're going to move to um, educational policy. There's none at this time, which leads us to policy development and distribution. There's also none at this time. Um, so personnel items. Yes, so in your packet is the personnel report. Um, we have a number of um, folks identified on the report. Um, two retirements, so Joanne Gincola, um, the librarian, librarian at Proctor School, and Mary Ellen Remillard. Um, the librarian at Z School are both retiring at the end of this year and um, I'm hoping that we can um, have a great celebration mm -hmm. for our retirees this year. It's been very challenging in the past two years. Can we invite back the old ones who left? Those, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give them a slice of cake too. Retirement jamboree. <laughs> um, but Joanne and Mary Ellen have done great work on our district and we look forward to honoring and celebrating their work and wishing them well as they, they move into retirement. Mm -hmm. Michelle Moody, who is an occupational therapist at Proctor um, and Melican Middle School, is now a team chairperson in Southboro. So this was a, an opportunity for a leadership position which she took. So um, she is taking a leave of absence just in case that she decides that she misses her role as an OT. And then we have two resignations, which really are not resignations. Melissa Farrell, who was a grade three teacher at Peasley, um, transitioned to a special education teacher two years ago, and she has decided that she wants to continue in that capacity. And then Megan Popolo, who was a grade eight ELA teacher, um, took on the role of an instructional technology specialist here at Mellican School, and has decided that she loves that position and wants to stay in that position. position. So all, all good news. 
except the retirees. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question about this. So I know last year there was other people who did like interim position, you know, like they did the leave. So when do those decisions get made? So or January 15th, they have to let us know if they're re returning. So it, we know who's returning already. I, I'm so maybe I'm not understanding. I'm so for example, there might have been a teacher at one school who took a leave to go to another school position, and then so I'm curious if that leave, you know what I mean? So it's like they kind of like what was it the leave of absence or one, and then they're yes, yeah, so, those, so it's like so we've had those types know, of things every like, year, and, and we had this conversation with Northbrook principals today. Every year we have to look at enrollment and yeah. see what the impact is, and we are meeting next. Wednesday, a week from today, with the North Bar principals to identify the need for the classes correct. and the things. So then, after shift. that's established, then yep. and then we'll notify who, the people who might have left and on hold and seeing what they want to do. Okay. <coughs> Any other questions? All right. Thank you. So um, there are no communications at this time, which brings us to um, our housekeeping. So action on minutes. We do have a set of open meeting minutes from our last meeting on February 2nd, 2022. So we're looking to approve those minutes. I'll make a motion to approve the minutes. Okay. Um, to approve the open meeting minutes from Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Second. Thank you. Any discussion? All those in favor? All those opposed? All those abstain? All right, we have one abstention and three in favor. So it passes. Thank you so much. Um, so you see that we have quite a few future agenda items listed. Um, we're hoping to hear from the SEL department for a presentation, as well as the principal's report. I know that um, uh, Principal Wright will be um, reporting. Um, the middle, Melican Mill, Middle School, as well as Lincoln Street School PTO presentations. Um, we do have to have our school choice public hearing and vote, as we do every year. Um, again, as Mr. Martineau said, a presentation from the school configuration study group will be coming up. Um, and then also sort of circling back to buses and updates and our plan for next year. Um, is there anything that committee members um, feel that the chair and the superintendent should consider adding to the agenda no okay no. Uh, if you change your mind just make sure that you reach out to me in the next few weeks um, anything that you would like to add that looks like a full so bills and payrolls uh, will be will be happening electronically so that brings us to audience sharing there are not many people left in the audience, but if you would like to share, <laughs> now is your opportunity. We uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Absolutely, Peter Olson. Thank you for joining us. If you could actually step up to this mic at the table. Oh, okay, uh, just, just real, real quickly, um, the uh, I, I just want to thank the uh, school committee and, and the central office for the and, and in, in particular, I guess the um, health advisory committee for the town. Uh, for the guidance that, that we've had and, and the way that the, uh, the association has been listened to and, um, and been a team player in all of this. I know we're not out of the woods by a long shot, but you can kind of see the clearing. 
and I think we're going to kind of head in that right direction. So thank you very much for, for, for getting us through this. So. Thank you. And thank Peter, you. thank you for your leadership. We appreciate it. Right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that concludes our business tonight. I'm looking for a motion to I'd adjourn. like to make a motion to adjourn. Excellent. Second. You have a motion and a second. Any discussion? All those in favor? Excellent. We have adjourned at 9.04 p.m. Have a wonderful evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Next month.